Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of How's That Day, a culture rundown with Tom and Phil. I'm Phil Wiedenheft, here to introduce you to my co-host, Mr. Tom Bond. Each week, Tom and I, we get together to chat about how our days have been going, and together we work through our thoughts on what's been going on in pop culture. This week, the looming threat of school reopenings finally took over the news cycle, with reopenings looming just five to six weeks away. This week revealed that there's really no national strategy for reopenings, there's no task force, there's no extra funding, but rather the president tweeting that the schools must reopen or he'll possibly cut their funding. Defund the police is blasphemy, but defund the schools is apparently A-OK. Never mind, he doesn't control that funding, but whatever. Although it's believed that uh, children and younger people are less likely to be affected by the virus that fails to address the older teachers, staff, lunch people, bus drivers, high schoolers, college kids, uh, older college kids on campus, the vast myriad the vast myriad of other people that are expected to and now under threat to return to these places. And Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos even gave an interview yesterday on Sunday where she openly admitted that they had no plan of action for reopenings and that their plan basically amounted to telling schools to just do whatever they needed to do, I guess. So uh, people are going to die, and by September, get ready for a whole wave of shit as numbers spike. Parents fear sending their children to school. Teachers refuse to work. Staffs are going get, to get sick. And these employees start taking that virus home to their loved ones. And uh, in an almost comically open example of mass corruption, the president commuted the sentence of convicted felon Roger Stone, Trump's longtime buddy, Roger Stone is a truly slimy, vile, horrific Gotham City bad guy masquerading as a human thing. He was convicted by a jury of his peers and this president, not caring at all because he knows no one in the Republican Party will do anything about it. And he was right, said his buddy wasn't treated fairly. So fuck our court system. Lindsey Graham, Lady G himself, has already said he's fine with it. And it's quite disgusting. The Supreme Court dropped several major decisions this week. One major development is them saying that no one, including the president, is exempt from producing evidence in a legitimate criminal investigation. So it looks like Trump's taxes are finally going to be seen by a group of lawyers investigating his businesses. They won't be seen by the American people or by Congress, which was also ruled on. So while the New York City courts are allowed to access those tax papers, the Supreme Court also ruled that Congress is not allowed, at least in this specific case. Black Lives Matter got painted down Fifth Avenue in Manhattan, partially in front of Trump Tower, despite Trump tweeting that painting it would be, quote, denigrating this luxury avenue and be a, quote, symbol of hate. In entertainment news, Glee actress Naya Rivera's body was found after she went missing in the lake earlier this week. She was 33 and drowned while swimming with her young son, who lived. This only adds to the horrifying list of tragedies that have affected the cast of the show in the years after it went off the air. Also, sadly, today, Kelly Preston, actress and longtime wife of John Travolta, passed away at 57 from breast cancer. The announcement came as a surprise to the public since the family had not previously disclosed that she was sick. And as we've talked about in past shows, Tenet looks like it's about to be pushed back once again. But what's new about speculation this time is that studios are considering a worldwide release and for once just not opening it first in America. As other countries move past COVID, keeping worldwide theaters shut down and cutting down on their yearly profits just for America's spoiler sake isn't feeling quite as worth it for the studios these days. There's so much going on. Each week is a month. It's exhausting. I'm exhausted. Tom, I've got the same question I ask you every week. How's that day? Yeah, I'm exhausted too, Phil. I'm exhausted too. That was, uh... (laughs) I was listening to that intro. That's just this week. 
I know, and I'm just waiting, like, surely some good news is coming, though, right? Like, something good has happened? No? Nothing? Okay, great. Um, sad to hear, I'll just start with the most recent news. Sad to hear about Kelly Preston. I, I heard about that just a couple hours before we started recording. That was very sad. Only 57. Yeah, she was, uh, I think, one of the first women I ever saw naked in Jerry Maguire when I was 10 years old. I One of my first thoughts was... <laughs> pervertedly sadly but i mean my introduction to her was jerry Maguire at age 11 and i just remember thinking she was one of the most beautiful women i had ever seen in my life up up until that point she was such a babe in that movie yeah she ate strawberries like nobody's business yeah just so hot but that's uh (laughs) that's very that's neither here nor there i'm sorry that's that she she's also a beautiful person inside and you know had a family and the travolta family's had a few tragedies now like their son dying a few years ago yeah poor john Uh, 50 57 is just too young it just is it's really sad um also sad about uh i'm sorry what was the name of the actress from glee naya rivera naya rivera yeah man that show seems cursed yeah, heroin overdoses, uh, pedophilia, suicide, like it's now a drowning, like it's just that they're all cursed. I'd I'd be scared if I was Leah Michelle. Um Liam what was the, there was another story a couple weeks ago. Was it about Leah Michelle? One uh another yeah. actor on that show called her out for being like a monster while they were filming Glee. Yeah, I don't think I'm spilling any tea here, but it, I, I think Leah Michelle does not have the best rep. Okay, so it was her. As, as a, uh, yeah, she has kind of a diva rep, kind of a difficult to be around with her entourage type rep, yeah, at least I, from what I've always heard. I forget the details now, so I probably shouldn't talk about it, but I'm going to. I think it was Leah Michelle commented something, you know, right after the George Floyd murder. And the protest began speaking out in solidarity and a co-star of Glee, whose name I am, I don't know, but I know she was a young actress and she was African-American, I believe, and commented like, oh, remember while we filmed that show together and you made my life a living hell, you monster, basically. Um, so, yeah, that that show is cursed. I've, I've never seen it myself. Were you ever a fan of Glee? Yeah, I I watched the first two seasons, maybe. Like, here's when what happened. It was like when it was the show that I yeah, was Yeah, here's what. Uh, here was the weird course of that show. It had a great pilot, and they actually, I think, aired the pilot after the Super Bowl and then made it readily available online on their website when that wasn't very common back then. And so, like, Anytime, and then they did not air the second episode right away. They was gonna, they weren't airing the second episode until like the fall or something. So you, they had this like six month just like hype thing for the pilot, and um, so you were able to watch the pilot a bunch before it aired, and then it finally they aired the rest of the season. And basically, what it seems like happened because it's a Ryan Murphy production, and Ryan Murphy, I've always said, can't do more than one season of any show. Like before, he just like just starts going haywire. But he um, he basically the first 13 episodes of that show, I think, are exactly what you would want from it in terms of being like this dark, twisted kind of, you know, it seems bubbly and poppy, but underneath it's kind of dark and crude and, you know, like all this stuff that's kind of going on underneath the surface that kind of made it really enjoyable as well as it being very earnest and corny. 
And then basically after those 13 episodes happened, it was such a big hit. They're like, all right, we need 13 more really quick. And we also need more and we need more and we need a second season. And basically at that point, after the first 13 episodes, and certainly by the start of season two, by season two, they're already like, let's do a Madonna episode. Let's do a Britney Spears episode. Let's do a whatever episode. Like they, they gave up on like narrative and just started becoming about like selling soundtracks very quickly. But so, but like the first 13 episodes, I actually think are still, you know, pretty good. Yeah, I think what you just said about Ryan Murphy is pretty spot on, too. I also feel like he he does so much. He creates so many shows. And I don't know if he just lose it, loses interest on his last thing and is on to the next. But it seems like he's found a groove with FX doing these, like, one-off uh, miniseries type shows like O.J. Simpson and stuff like that where he can just put all of his energy into one season and then move on to the next thing before it can turn into garbage. Because I remember when The People vs. O.J. Simpson came out and it was getting raves, and I, I still haven't seen it, and I should because it got such good reviews, but I remember thinking, like, well, it's a Ryan Murphy show. It's going to eventually turn into garbage, but it ended before it could shit the bed or jump the shark. So uh, maybe that's his his right... Uh, Maybe that's the place he needs to be in. Just one season shows in and out. Because I remember Nip Tuck was, yeah, I was gonna say enjoyable. Everyone told me Nip Tuck, like the first season or two is great, and then it just gets fucking crazy. And Yeah, it was like a it was a really fun, kind of trashy soap opera type of show. Um and then it just shit the bed. American horror story. I don't know. some people love different seasons of that show, but the only season i found even tolerable was the first season um and then I, never, the other, I never watched it yeah the other hand that's the only season i've finished and then I've, I've tried starting a handful of other seasons and they're all just poop can't do it um but yeah i mean good for him for getting so many shows out there yeah i just you know you wish he would i feel like it's great. I think he enjoys camp and, like you said, soap opera, soap opera in a way yeah. that I think m- makes some of these shows like Scream Queens or something that was on Fox. Like, obviously, it's leaning into that kind of, you know, kish or quiche or whatever. And, um, kitsch. Kitsch. Yeah, yeah. I couldn't think of the word. Anyway, that kind quiche, of kitsch. And is a it's, food. Yeah, you're right. An egg. It's like an egg pie kind of thing. Anyway, um, so yeah, he kind of leans into this like camp, and I think that some that somehow makes the shows not just like get a, you know lose some narrative momentum. The shows get like crazy. Like you're like, what what is this? Ha- what's happening? Like it's not just like jumping the shark, but you're like it, it it's his version of jumping the shark, but it happens like like by episode fourteen of a show. Yeah. And you're like you're like the whoa, point, why the, we're doing the show this might as well be called Jumping the Shark. Like that should be the name of his shows. They're kitchen sink shows. He just throws everything at the wall and sees what sticks. Uh, and yeah, Scream Queens is actually another one of his shows that I watched. And that got canceled after two seasons. But I remember... And that was actually one that was, was never really well-reviewed from the get-go. And I watched all of season one because it was like, you know, a, a slasher, Scream-type TV show. So obviously I'm going to give it a chance. And Jamie Lee Curtis was in it. And it was it was difficult to get through, but I, I was able to finish the first season, and at some point, 
early on in season two, I just had to bail. But um, yeah, he loves camp, which I think is great. I'm all for someone leading into that. I think that can be super fun. But yeah, he just seems to lose his way. But, you know, a lot of people like him. And he obviously has also made stuff that is super, um, that comes highly acclaimed. So, Well, he also had that show this year, Hollywood. That kind of got trashed. I didn't watch Never it. Never heard of that. It's yeah, it's it's on Netflix, I believe. Um, it's kind of like an alternate history of um, I think if some of the like minorities of the time of like the twenties and thirties, um, a, a group of aspiring actors and filmmakers in post World War II Hollywood try to make it big, no matter the cost. But it's like an alternate history with like race relations kind of being switched. And the tagline is, "What if you could rewrite the story?" <laughs> but anyway, it got terrible reviews. I will say I've heard he has a reputation, and I mean, a lot of it is, you know, plain to see that um, I think he gets a lot of credit for um, giving a lot of people opportunities in Hollywood, especially um, minorities or LGBTQIA people, Latinx people. I think, you know, he's he seems to have a reputation in the industry as trying to prop up. Um, lots of other voices, which is great, you know. It, even you know, even if the show's not your thing, that's still, um, I think, a model to aspire to. So that part is awesome. Uh, what else? Oh, Roger Stone. Yes, he's a he's a douchebag. That's obvious. I mean, no one was surprised by that, but whatever. Fuck, fuck Roger Stone. It's um, incredible. That, that just yeah it, reminded it's... me of the sheriff sheriff Arpaio stuff, which Trump. That was like one of the first things Trump did in office. Right, was pardon. It's just that, so blatant. Like this is like the most blatant, blatantly open act of corruption. You're just like you're just you don't even care. You don't he doesn't even care. care. No, you just we know that. Yeah, and you're just it's amazing to me. It's one thing for it to happen, but then I'm shocked when like the Lindsey Grams or whatever are like, yeah, 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 it's okay. And I'm like, fuck <laughs> you, fuck you, Lindsey. Lady, but, would you call him Lady L? Lady G. Remember Lady G gets his ass eaten. Yeah. Them's just my ladybugs. Oh, mm. God. Yeah, the fact that Lindsey Graham had the nerve to tweet about that and say, like, that he's looked over the findings and decided that it was the proper move for Trump to pardon Roger Stone because what did he say? He's, a, he's in his 70s and this was a nonviolent victimless crime or some bullshit. God yeah, I, damn it. While while the Republicans are fucking mass incarcerating, not just Republicans, Democrats too, are mass incarcerating nonviolent uh, first-time offenders all the time for and drug the, offenses left and right. Like, fuck off with that bullshit. Yeah, and by the way, like, his offense was coercing with WikiLeaks and Russian assets uh, to interfere with the election. So to say no one's harmed by that is just bullshit. It's bullshit. And, and on he's top not of even lying in, he's, to he's 67, I believe. He's not even in his 70s. Not like that should matter. Who get why why did Lindsey Graham bring that up? Who gives a fuck that he's in his 70s? Like, oh, this guy fucking like Bill Cosby should be let go cuz he's old. What is this nonsense? I don't That's, know, man. It's so it's infuriating. Cr- but I mean, Roger Stone knew it. He played it th- this way because he knew that his silence would guarantee him a pardon and it worked. That's exactly what happened. Yeah. I didn't even mention, I forgot to mention in my whole thing that Kanye's running for president. Kanye. Well, we'll see. 
We'll see. We'll see how long that lasts. Before did you did you read the, the Forbes thing. interview with him? Uh, I saw bits and bobs of it. I didn't read it. Uh yeah, he's lost his damn mind. He he'd already lost his damn mind. That was gone a while ago. I, yeah, it's just like he, he's gone to different levels of losing his mind that you you kind of just continually you get you get more and more worried about. You're like, I didn't know you were gonna keep sinking. Oh, he still can produce a hell of a track, given that. Yeah, I listened to Jesus is King today, actually, just kind of like giving it another spin, another uh, consideration, because it's only like 22 minutes. And, yeah. um, you know, it's fine. It's, I don't I, I don't really need to listen to it much. I, I like the production, and I like gospel, but it's, the, I don't know, it's just not to my to my liking. Yeah, not his best work, for sure. Um, but I think, uh, yeah, I think the biggest story going on right now is the the country deciding to, or, or those in office are pushing to reopen schools in the fall, which, as you said, you know, we're less than two months away from that. And that just has disaster written all over it for all the reasons you mentioned. But, and not only that, but like the kids who may or may not get sick but they're going to be bringing that home too. And that's another consideration. And it's just going to be like massive spread. We've the, the, the infuriating thing is that so many people who are COVID skeptics or who aren't alarmist about this or who think it's not as big of a deal as it clearly is, they, they confuse the forest for the trees, right? And they refuse to look long-term at any of this. And they say stuff like, oh, you know, cases are spiking, but deaths are are still declining or staying level. So that's that's proving that even though the case rate's spiking, we should rush to shut the, the country down again. And it was like, well, just wait a little bit and you're going to see the death rate spike. And what do you know this week? The death rates are starting to spike again. Like this is all a pattern that we've seen for the last several months. And they're just trying to ignore it and wish it away. And it's so infuriating. And you see shit like Disney World is opening up. And that's such a that's such a disaster. That's such a bad decision. The fact that they're even considering to open schools right now in this country while we're in the position we're in with COVID to me is pathological. It is truly pathological. And when they try to compare it to other places, other countries where they have the virus under control to some extent where they have flattened the curve or they're in a steady rate of decline and saying well they're considering opening up schools yeah we that's apples to oranges man we can't compare ourselves to them because we fucked this whole thing up for the last five months you know yeah Uh, it's so infuriating man it's so infuriating if i had a kid i I would not put them in school i just wouldn't well just for the record I, i forgot to include it in the intro we're currently at 138,482 covid deaths um this week. So I like to I like to have the number in there each week so uh one day we can go back and see how horrible it was week to week. But that's where we're currently at this week. And in America. Yeah, like that, you those, said, that's the death total in America. In America, yeah. And it's just yeah. you know, we we're from I'm we we haven't talked about this yet. I'm in Ohio right now. I had to travel during all of this, so I'll tell you about that, but um yeah, back in LA, where you're at right now, everything is uh, 
you know, getting locked right back down. They're like, sorry, guys, we opened too early. We got to shut this shit down. Um, I can't believe that Disney Disney World is opening. That's just that, you know, the Florida governor is just an ass, but it's it's insane. And um, there's there's no national strategy, like I said, for the like there's no guidance that I couldn't believe that interview with Betsy DeVos. I don't know if you saw it, but the, where she's just like yeah we we want the schools to do what they need to do we believe we want to just like let them you know give them the open you know floor to do that and it's just like well you know not every school has the resources to do that or have been given the time or the money to budget for this or you know given uh you know money to have extra cleaning stations extra uh you know sanitary sanitation things extra things to keep the food and the cooks and the whatever and the uh cafeteria clean like all all these measures that would have to be implemented should have been thought about months ago we should have been thinking about that when schools were going you know out for the summer it's going to be like all right well I, everyone just got so hopeful on that idea that oh it's going to get warm and it's just going to go down for a while even though like you know we know back in april they were saying it's going to come back in the fall no matter what it's coming back so even then we knew it was coming back people just hoped that I don't know, summer would just evaporate it or something? I don't know. But somewhere along the line, everyone just, especially at the national government level, just dropped the ball and stopped. Like, had, There's no long-term planning at, in any way at any level going on right now. Yeah, it's impossible to look at this and see it as anything but a catastrophic failure on the federal level. And what you were just saying, Betsy wants to leave it into the hands of the school, basically ring the like state's rights bell, let them do what they want to do. But yes, they need additional funding and resources if they are going to reopen to do so as safely as possible. And not only are they getting that help or those instructions or some sort of plan from our government, on the contrary, they're getting they're basically getting threatened from the president saying open up or else I'm going to take money away from you, which, as you said in your introduction, it's not really how it works, Don. But that said, just the message of that is so counterproductive and it's baffling that we would have a president basically threaten the United States school system. Yeah. It's, 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 ugh, it's unfathomable. And like you said, not every school is created equally. Like, yeah, some, some elite private high school could probably find a way to reopen as safely as physically possible considering this situation. But for every elite prep school in a place like Los Angeles, there's 40 public underfunded schools that have 30 to 40 kids per teacher, you know, or in overcrowded classrooms with a lack of funds already with after school programs being slashed left and right. How are they going to be able to afford to put procedures in place to make going back to school even like the consideration of a safe move. It's it's impossible. It can't be done. The way the, the coronavirus is just slicing through this country right now. It can't be done. Yeah, I think they're going to go back at the end of August. Everyone's going to put on a strong face, and then numbers are going to start coming out by mid-September and then by the end of September, I think more people are going to be afraid. I think the numbers are going to spike. I think we're gonna there's going to be some horrible incidents at a school. Who knows? Every every district's going to handle it differently, depending on like we've talked about their budgets or um, 
their belief in COVID as a threat. Um, you know, so I'm sure there's some districts out there that are still kind of like, ah, you know, it's not really a problem here, but you know, you're going to have all of that going on and there's no map. There's no, there's no nothing. So I think by the end of September, like I said, there's going to be, uh, there's going to be a spike in deaths. I think you're going to have a lot of teachers who are just like, I'm not, I'm not going in there, man. That's a, I'm not, it's a Petri dish. That's, that's all it is, is you guys putting us out on this giant living Petri dish to see how bad this virus morphs once we all get inside, you know, or something. It's just, it's a, it's a ticking time bomb. I'm calling it now late September when we're recording, it's going to be bad news. I agree. And speaking of Petri dishes, Disney world is in Orlando, Florida. Florida is one of the states that is spiking horribly right now in coronavirus cases, maybe not specifically in Orlando, but all around it. And it's not like Disney World is a place that is just full of Orlando residents who like to go there and, you know, like go on a roller coaster to unwind after work. That That's going to be bringing people from all over the country that's going to then go back to their residences all over the country. It's a horrible idea. And we have the NBA in that bubble right now in Orlando. And just today we found out, not from Orlando... But the two stars of the Houston Rockets, Russell Westbrook and James Harden, just uh, announced they have COVID. Um, uh, James Harden had not traveled to Orlando yet. Basically, all of the players in that bubble are already in Orlando. They traveled this past week. James Harden hadn't, and there was a wonder. people wondering why. Turns out he's tested positive. Russell Westbrook, who I believe is in Orlando, just found out he was positive and is now um, isolating from the team with the hopes of being ready to go in two weeks or whatever. But, you know, play starts in 17 days or something like that. Um, it just, it, it has disaster written all over it, in my opinion. Yeah, I just, I don't know how anyone's looking at the news right now and is thinking, yeah, I think we should move forward. Yeah, why 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 is anyone listening to this podcast? Every every week, every week we just bitch in the intro. Well, we're going to talk sorry. about I'm sorry guys. We're going to talk about great art and things to, you know, that keep us up at night, you know, uh in you know, give us solace and all that good shit later. But you know, right now yeah. the world the world is burning, Tom. What else we is there gotta, to talk we got to we got to no, we got to vent. We got to do it. And uh, uh you know, you guys we timestamp when we uh talk about fun stuff so you're you're free to skip ahead if you want and if you need it if this helps you in some way because you're mad and can't talk to someone i hope it helps did anything good happen to you phil is well, anything good happened like i said uh i traveled to ohio so yeah, you I, get to hang out with your daughter yeah so the plan was for her to come out for the summer or at least for like a, a month or so of the summer uh this year come out to LA but with everything going on uh she has asthma amongst other concerns and had never flown before and it the schedule wasn't lining up for her to fly with somebody else just to kind of be there with her or anything so had, it was just had never flown period she did when she was very young but she hasn't any time recently um like you're not saying on her own she's never been on a plane since she was a very little baby I don't think so no Wow, that's crazy. I mean, we've we ever all of our vacations were always kind of driving vacations. Like you yeah. could get there within a few hours. So we weren't big on flying. So like when she was flying was when I was living in New York. So she was very young. Yeah, uh, back I remember then. that. 
So she doesn't remember a lot of that. And especially, especially just with everything going on, it was just determined that I should go home. So I am home now. I, uh, I wore a mask for, you know, eight to 10 hours or something through the airport and plane rides and stuff. And honestly, everything was the exact same, except everyone wore masks. That's, that was really the only difference. And, uh, you didn't get the drink cart didn't go through giving you pretzels and drinks. They gave it to you in a small baggie when you like entered the plane. Um, so like, there was, you know, right before you flew out, uh, there was a whistleblower um, that basically called out the the TSA and said that they, they, they failed like 80% of the procedures that had been put in place um, for the coronavirus concerns, like social distancing, mask yeah. wearing, stuff like that. Yeah, I saw that. Did you see... Uh, like uh, more restrictions in place or did it seem like, Oh, people really aren't following guidelines here. I didn't see anybody like everyone seemed to be taking the mask thing seriously. I didn't really see a lot. I saw one guy like in the whole airport at one point, like standing around kind of just with his mask in his hand, not really wearing it. But I no, I didn't see like armed security chasing him down to put it on, but I didn't, well, it, it seemed like most people were, you know, taking it quite seriously. And, yeah, the plane but like going going through security was how long was I'll be the line? Honest. Were people keeping their distance? What what was the deal? Uh, security was not that long. I, I it did not take me at all that long to get through security. I was through it in maybe ten to fifteen minutes. And the the one thing that they didn't do that they said they were going to do is take my temperature. There was no temperature check. Um, but they, they just checked IDs. There was a, instead of like, you know, you normally go up there and hand them your ID and your, uh, show them your flight before you go to security. And um, instead of how they're normally at like a little uh, stand, now they're behind a plexiglass wall and you had to like lower your mask and show them your face with your ID and stuff to match that. But that was the only like difference was like they were behind plexiglass and you had to show them your face without the mask. Other than that, it was the exact same. It took me like 10 to 15 minutes. It wasn't really any different. And yeah, I don't know. That's the, the play. The plane ride was very uneventful, if, especially if you've flown before. And how full was the plane? Uh, very full. I was in the middle seat crammed between Ugh, two people. That sucks. Yeah. I didn't get, I didn't get my choice. It was like an extra hundred dollars to choose your seat. And I was like, I'm, I'm good. Whatever. I, I just can't believe they already got rid of the, you know, just try. I mean, obviously, you're in a plane with recycled air for several hours. You can't really avoid, like, any any type of social distancing is really just, uh, you're just doing it for show at that point. So I, I guess I understand that. But to not even put on some type of show of, like, yeah, we're just not going to sell the middle seats right now is crazy to me. And there's also that picture that came out today of Ted Cruz on a flight, um, not wearing a mask the whole time. And it was like an hour long flight where there was like pictures of him sitting in the, in the gate without a mask on and then pictures of him on the plane without a mask on. And, uh, you know, so, and that was an American airlines flight and I flew American and they're the ones that gave up on the, on the social distancing and the plane thing. So I, you know, they're fucking up right now, but they also had the cheapest, most, uh, yeah, the easiest flight for me, so that's what I'm flying home too. So I, I don't know. Late stage capitalism for the win. Everyone is not everyone, but people have warned it'll be the death of us all, and we are seeing it in action. Like, yeah, we hear all we, every every time I hear a bad story about Jeff Bezos, I'm like that bastard, and then I go straight to Amazon and order something. 
Yep. It's going to be the end of us, man. Um, yeah. Uh, I'm trying to think if, if, if I did anything fun this week. We, you know, we, we've both obviously been watching movies. Um, I got to say, even though I, I just told you about the two stars of one of the contending teams in the league testing positive for the coronavirus, and I fully, I am not convinced the this bubble experiment with the NBA will end with a league champion crowned in October. I'm, I'm not convinced that it's not going to just sh- have to shut down at some point, but I can't, I cannot lie. I am very much hoping it works and looking forward to it because if the NBA can come back and give me three months of entertainment, I, I may cry if they are able to pull this off. Uh, the one thing we did as a family, now that I'm back in town, last night we went to uh, Top Golf. you know, like one of those outdoor driving range, yep. like hangout things. Seems like an okay thing since it's outdoor, you know, uh-huh. heavily ventilated. They put tarps up between all the little cubicles and everything, and, the, you know, they were spaced out and stuff. So, you know, seemed about as good as anything else that you could do. Like, you know, it's pretty, as, as you know, it's very outdoors and seemed safe. So we went and did that. And on the TV, there was a, I don't know what team was playing, but it was uh, soccer for us, football for them, a European football game. And I, I just saw every certain men wrapped up in it. And I was like, I wonder if they're actually soccer fans or European football fans, or if they're just like so desperate to like look at a sport happening in front of them that they're just absorbed in this thing happening. Oh, I, I think it's very possible that it's the latter. I know... I know I have friends who are actively watching um, European soccer right now, Premier League and stuff like that, that that have been back for a few weeks um, playing in front of uh, fanless arenas and stuff like that. It's been going on for a little while now. And, um, yeah, I'm I'm hearing updates about it, even though I myself am not watching. Yeah, but But I mean... I I was just going to say the rest of the the, world's opening up. It's crazy. Yeah, the... I mean, Premier League is one of the biggest soccer leagues in the world, and they've been they've been going strong for a couple of weeks now. So, I mean, other countries, even though England's not the best example, but there there are certainly other countries that are that are starting to open up because they can because they they had a plan in place that they executed. You know, that's one of the major bummers about LA is it seemed like we were one of the the role model cities at first. You know, we shut down almost right away you know, comparatively to the rest of the country. Like yeah. We shut, we shut the city down super early. Our case count was very low, especially, uh, you know, per capita, per population uh, rates compared to other major cities around here. It seemed like we were doing good. And, you know, any hopes of warm weather uh, mitigating it at, at a little bit, at least during the summer months, we had that on our side to look forward to. And then we just opened up too early. It's just a fact. I mean, it's, I'm back in Ohio and it's been crazy kind of being back here, comparing it to LA. Uh, It's just so much more lax here with the masks and it's more, it's more like at your discretion. And, uh, you know, like I was telling you, if you go to like downtown Dayton, that's considered Montgomery County, that is mass required outside wherever you're at. But if, if you go like right outside, like 10 or 15 minutes outside the city, which is where most people live. You know, those are, you know, recommended. So you don't see it any almost 
you'll everywhere you go, you'll barely see anyone wearing a mask. So like, I thankfully my family's been wearing a mask whenever I've seen them and whenever we've gone out. But yeah, I've I've been I ran into a Kroger and like no one was wearing a mask in it, and I was like, Jesus, it's the complete opposite in L.A. So it's like infuriating that L.A.'s numbers are so bad, and then I look here and it's like, yeah, they're they're not great, but they're they're nothing compared to some of the other areas in the world, you know, and they're, but they're doing such a shitty job. Yeah. I mean, it was just a few weeks ago where in LA, um, you know, they, they were one of the first cities to open up testing for everyone. And it got to the point where you could just, uh, you could go get tested very easily for free in LA. And now we're at the point where they're running out of tests again they're turning people away who aren't showing symptoms. They're not allowing them to get tested. We're like right back to where we were at the start of this thing. It's, it's super, it's very, very depressing. Yeah. I'm not going to lie. And, uh, the regular flu season and influenza season is, uh, coming right up. So, uh, yep. yeah, get ready. Um, man, we, we gotta, we gotta find some nice things to talk about. Um, <laughs> yeah, just get, get ready to continue staying at home basically is what that means. I mean, what do you think about, uh, speaking of the world getting better, I mentioned that Tenet is, you know, I, I read that certain studios are like, well, you know, like, if we can open it in China and in certain parts of Europe, like, the only reason we normally open it in America is just because we're an American company and, you know, we want to, you know, give America first look, I guess, since that's tradition. And they're kind of like, well, do we want to keep doing that? We could, you know, they're kind of ready overseas. You know, do we want to just say, fuck your first glance, America? I don't know. I would. I mean, maybe that's the kick in the ass the government needs. Be like, oh, fuck. We're going to lose out on being we're gonna the get first sp- country to see movies. We got to get our shit in gear. Guys, we're going to get spoiled. It's going to leak. We have to get rid of this COVID before. I mean, that's that's capitalism, right? Like, why if you were a studio and you knew you had half a billion dollars waiting for you overseas, why would you not go gobble that up? Yeah, I mean, maybe Americans they're going to be like, "Look, guys, they got Tenet. Now they got James Bond. We can't let them have any. We can't let them have Mulan. We gotta. We just gotta kick this thing in the bucket. You know, we just gotta." Get well, what's it. what's the plan? Would they would they release th- these movies overseas and put it out digitally in America, or that's would we what, just not have access to it? I that's what I heard that they were kicking around was like releasing it theatrically overseas, but giving it a paid video on demand or a more expensive yeah. paid video on demand here in America. I think Christopher Nolan will not go for that idea. Um, just, I think he'll wait it out for whatever happens here in America, but I don't, you know, like even maybe, if it leaks and everyone finds out the plot of tenant and it gets spoiled and it takes a year, like China gets it in August and we get it next June. He's fine with that. I don't know, man. He's such a purist about the theatrical yeah. experience. You know, I really, he's, uh, if it was any other filmmaker, I'd, you know, say whatever, but he is so, uh, such a pure, purity guy that I don't know. But as much as it would bum me out to not see, like, the new James Bond in theaters, like, that, that, that idea is just a real heartbreaker personally. But if I were that studio, I would release. No time to die in other countries and, yeah, put it on demand in America. And I will absolutely rent that because it's the new James Bond movie. And I, really, I really want to see it, you know? Yeah. I mean, like, if it doesn't happen with Tenet, it might happen with something else. So, But it might also be 
an interesting reversal of what historically has been the release strategy for these things. Uh, you know, because I, I remember hearing about kids in England who would be pissed that they'd have to wait like eight months to a year to see the Star Wars movie or Empire Strikes Back or something that had come out in America. And they were yep. just so so angry about how long they'd have to wait to see shit. So it'd be a fun reversal of that if that happened well, here, I guess. And I, I was going to make a joke about like, well, maybe I'll just go plan a trip to another country and live there for the next year while movies are coming out. But I, I don't even know... How many Americans do you think realize that we can't really leave the country right now? Like, we have fucked this up so badly that we're not allowed to leave America. Like, yeah. Mexico closed their borders to us. Yeah, it's great. Europe closed their borders to us. We we have done so poorly with the coronavirus that we're stuck here. Think well, of how insane that is. Yeah, I mean, it's... It's unprecedented, man. I It's hard to fathom right now. We're kind of so far in the middle of it that it's kind of like, man, I really, I really, even if you don't like Joe Biden, it's like, man, I really hope just someone boring can be elected just so we can all like just take a breather, just have a couple boring weeks, you know, like just, I think everyone's exhausted. I know, but even, even if he wins, it's not until January he comes in office and then it's still however long till a vaccine, however long till it's distributed, how, blah blah blah. You know, it's it's gonna we're in it's it's not gonna be till next summer that possibly things are starting to get back to normal, whatever that is. Yeah, so few people want to believe me when I've, I've that's what I've been saying almost this entire time. I'm like, guys, we're going through it through next winter and spring. Yeah, we're I mean, foolish it's, to think otherwise. I mean, I think even a lot of the nations that have gotten it relatively under control i think a lot of them are going to see spikes in the winter i don't think they're they're not out of the woods yet that i think the difference is they're aware of that you know and they're they're trying to prepare for that and that's the difference yeah well they have leaders who uh care yeah pretty much well all right do you want to Want to talk about something lighter? You want to talk about movies? We're, we're yeah, let's that. talk about movies, now, guys. Next week we're gonna try to let, let's try to have a fun opening segment because this should be fun. I mean, I know we got to talk about what's going on in the world, but it's I can't imagine that was enjoyable to listen to. I just can't. <laughs> I just cannot imagine that it was. I'm sorry. I mean, maybe it gives people they can hear our pain and they're like, "Yeah, guys, I feel it," and then. Uh, then they can move on or they're just like, this is bumming me out. I'm gonna go listen to my, my rock and roll music. Yeah. Go listen to a comedy podcast, but I mean, yeah, hopefully we vent for you. So you don't snap at a loved one. Like if you're, if you ended up marrying a Trump supporter, you're stuck in quarantine with them. Just listen to us vent, and that way you can like get it out of your system and don't slap your husband around or something like that. Yeah. Cause he's, it's probably a guy. Oh but, yeah, I mean eighty percent. Although we have we haven't really talked about the rise of the Karen in the last like couple of months, but uh, we don't have to dive into it now. We've already <laughs> talked about that. it. We're not, talk- we're not <laughs> talking. I'm about just saying, like, yeah, we uh, you know we we haven't really dived into these uh, bitchy white women. But uh, I feel bad. I have an I have an aunt named Karen who's a lovely lady. Uh, I feel bad that her name has been appropriated for that. And I feel bad that redheads are told that they have no soul. You know, but yep. <laughs> it's, a, it's what happens to some of us. Yeah, some things are just true. Anyway, let's talk about 
let's talk about movies, Phil. All right. We had just finished. We're on month seven of the year. We have just finished the sixth month. We're halfway through. We have seen, I have seen a, a good amount of movies. Tom has watched a good few, especially in the last week, I assume, you know, trying to see what he's been. Uh, I'm excited to hear what he's been watching. And yeah, we just wanted to talk about year so far. We're at the halfway point. Next week, we're going to talk about the year in music so far. But yeah, we. I just wanted to use this as a platform for us to talk about our favorite shit. And the good thing is, almost all of it's pretty widely available. Uh, so anything we talk about, well, I'll, I'll at least mention where it's available for me. Most of them are streaming and or available on through some website somewhere. So I'm excited to talk about it. Um, I have I have a whole list. I can talk about any plethora of movies this year, but. Uh, I don't know, Tom, is there anything you wanted to set up about your list? Yeah, um, I've seen, at this point in the year, now Phil knows, people who know me personally know, how much I love going to the movie theater. It is literally my favorite activity. I mean, my number one activity is to go to the movie theater. I will see any movie in a theater it does not matter to me what is playing. I just like going. I mean, obviously, I'm more excited for certain titles, but you want to see Independence Day 7 in 2038 starring, like, Jaden Smith's stunt double? Sure, I'll go to that, you know? I just, I love going to the theater. So when I say at this point in, of 2020, I have seen by half, the fewest number of movies to this point in the year that I have seen since I was, I mean, literally since I was like nine. I mean, since, since I, since I was I, in middle school. Well, I mean, I know you've talked to me about how you've had a couple years here and there where you've checked out. Like I remember you, we've talked about kiss, kiss, bang, bang being a, mo- a big movie for you in that regard. But, um, I'm curious, even at those times, did you kind of check out as hard as you have this year? No, because, I mean, maybe, maybe. So there there was a stretch uh, 2003 to 2005 where I was a little bit checked out. But even then, I would go to the movies somewhat regularly as a hobby. You know, I just wasn't really watching stuff at home or, like, doing doing my, my homework, my film, um my lifelong quest of, you know, learning and loving and appreciating film. It, I, I had kind of fallen. Um, I'd kind of hit rock bottom as a film fan in the, in those years for a multitude of reasons, but I, I got my groove back like Stella and all was well. But even then I, I was probably going to the theater, like, you know, three or four times a month. So, you know, at the very least, I, I would at least have been at the number on that right now, which is around, I'm at around 25 films, which means I'd be on pace for 50. And I normally hit 100 movies in a year by like Thanksgiving or sometime between Halloween and Thanksgiving, I would say. I'm normally around 100 movies. And uh, well over half of those are in theaters. I mean, I'm a member of the AMC A-List, uh, which has been able to up my numbers. But yeah, I mean, I used to do tons of double features. Phil and I used to do that in New York. I would just go like whenever I had a free minute. I'd love going to the theater. I obviously have movie-going buddies. I, have, I had 
uh, horror group of friends. Uh, sadly, one of them has moved away. I mean, I still have some friends, but obviously we don't really go to the theater anymore. But um, yeah, I go to the theater with Sarah a lot. So the theater is a big part of it. So not having the, the movie theater experience the last four months has seriously crippled um, my movie going uh, schedule this year, you know, especially with new releases. Um, but I've been actively trying at least the last couple of weeks to, to seek out more and watch more, you know, a large part of it was for this list to have some diversity on my list. Um, but also just getting into the groove of it. Cause I, you know, I have to understand that it's going to be like this for a while. So if I want to stay up to date, this is how I got to do it. Yeah. Um, I kind of, and I'm basically on the opposite journey where, I mean, I think we both, I think we both probably average like a hundred to 120 ish or 130 ish movies a year, like new releases a year, or at least on most years. And right now I'm halfway through, I'm at 60, I'm at 64 movies for, for this year. Um, titles I've seen, and that's more than I would normally have seen. Um, I think quarantine has obviously played a big role in this. Um, and especially the fact that all these films not being in theaters, I'm, I think just whatever, I don't know. I have the patience to sit down and do the streaming things. I think you're trying to, I mean, rightfully so trying to read and stay on your feet and walk around more and get out more. And you're not trying to just be watching things all day. But I mean, I, yeah, just I, I would read about a new movie and I would seek it out, and most of them were actively available. Or I had to pay ten bucks to a website to donate to some theater chain that would give me access to something. And just I I was just watching a lot of movies. The one thing I will say, looking at my list, is this year because everything, all the big titles have been sidelined. My list is very very small, like in terms of scale movies. Like almost all of my movies are indie movies and small scale dramas for the most part there's not a lot of big you know action or anything of the sort here and because most of that didn't get released this year you know i i'm looking through my top 50 top 60 and there's really only a few you know big action things or big visual you know movies that have come out but you know a lot of my movies are very small um, and those are all the big titles. Sorry to interrupt. Are probably the January, February releases, right? Like Bad Boys, Birds of Prey, stuff like that. Yeah, Sonic the Hedgehog. Sonic whatever. the Hedgehog. Yeah. Yeah, like Onward. Those types of movies that you know came out earlier in the year. But yeah, the stuff that has generally come out has been very small scale. And so my list, looking at it, I'll be honest, my my list is very sad. <laughs> my uh, my top ten is not exactly the most fun group of movies I would say that you could have. Um, they're most of them are pretty heavy and, um, I will say I'm, I'm, I just, Oh, I just, sad, sad as in subject matter. I thought you meant sad as in pathetic. It's like, really? No, You've seen a ton. No, no. I'm saying sad. Just like, they're just, they're just sad movies. I didn't pressing uh, titles. I'm looking, yeah, I'm looking at my top 20 and I'm like, yeah, yeah, maybe three of these are I would consider fun, or four or five of them maybe out of these twenty. The rest of them I would kind of be like, yeah, it's kind of a heavy sit. You might want to have to be in the mood, et cetera. Um, but so let well, let's talk about this for a second because you, you know you mentioned you've had the patience to kind of sit down and watch a lot of this stuff during the quarantine, whereas I've been like delving into books and going on a lot of walks, and I've I like uh, I've told you and have mentioned on the podcast and. You know, we'll get into it more next week. I've spent a lot of time 
discovering new music more so this year than in past years. And, you know, trying to understand, like, what our quarantine habits are. You know, not just you and me, but people in general. And obviously everyone's tics are going to be different. I know I have a, a few friends who are just binging show after show after show, right? Like, there's so much good television, and they're just, like, barreling through all these shows that they've always wanted to to catch up with and finally have the time to do so. And I think that's, I think that's part of it for me is, you know, I don't want to spoil some of the titles, but I know some of the titles you're talking about that are small and sad. And the idea of just sitting down to that right now for me, I, I just don't know if I can do it, you know, like, I just don't know if like my, 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 brain is strong enough to handle sitting through like a really profound bummer experience i mean maybe not because sometimes the quality of the movie you know there's obviously we'll get to it but there's at least one or two titles on my list that are not like feel good movies and stuff like that and you know obviously the quality of the film can overpower anything but yeah i don't know maybe that's why i'm leaning more towards just listening to music a lot more or like losing myself in a good book or something like that. I heard it um I heard that I heard it phrased a certain way either today or yesterday. I don't I don't I don't even know where I heard it. Um but I heard somebody express it as some people want an entrance and some people want an exit. Uh, meaning that you know some people are looking to art as a way to kind of get into the, you know, dig into the shit or uh look at the horror and I think that's kind of where I'm at right now where I'm very much like yeah, I want to examine these terrible things that happen, whether it's about race or sexism or class or, you know, gentrification, whatever big topic the film happens to be about. I guess for me, I'm kind of attracted to it. And it's almost like I, I, I'm as, as much a fan of the format, the formal techniques being used by the filmmakers oftentimes. So I'm looking at that stuff, but also just I, I feel good. It's almost like a release to like, give all my sadness to that movie and express it through that or learn something or take away something profound or emotional. Um, and so I, but I understand that that's not for everyone. And which is the other thing, which is that, that exit quality where I think there's a lot of people who right now who are looking like, no, I want to watch something where I do not have to like dive into anything. I want to watch, you know, like cartoons. I want to watch silly action movies. I don't, I don't want to delve into the, the problems of the world as so many problems are happening in the world right now. Right. And uh, that makes sense. Both sides make sense. And I think normally in my life, I've been right there with you and willing and eager to do that. I guess, I guess, yeah, just right now, maybe I'm a little more fragile or something. I don't know. Um, Because yeah, normally I like to do that as well. And that just hasn't been the case as much um, this year so far. But I think, you know, as time is passing with the lockdown and everything that's going on this year. And I think just with the knowledge that we're in it for the long haul, you know, um, I think I'm slowly going to open myself up more and see some stuff. And hopefully I think a lot of the titles that are going to pop up on your list that I haven't seen, maybe this will be the, the kick in the pants that I need. So when we get to the end of the year and do our final top 10 list, I'll have some more diversity of titles. Because I would say right now from my top 10, I think my top three are titles that I would be 
satisfied with if they made my end of the year list. You know, like if six of my current top 10 are on my list at the end of the year, I'll be bummed because that means it was either just a bad year, which could happen because so much is being um, put on hold or I just didn't seek out as much as I should. I, I I agree with that. I am very ha- I like I truly love every movie in my top 10, but I do suspect that if it were a regular year, this would not be my top 10. Yeah. Uh, like I don't think it would resemble this at all probably. Um, you know, a few titles probably would have gotten in there, but yeah, like I I've, I've seen a lot this year and I agree. My top 10 is are all very good, but I suspect a, a different year would would have resulted in a different list. So, yeah. But all right, shall we get to, into it? Yeah, let's do it. You want to you want to start? Do you want me to start? I don't I don't really care. You choose as the one with the more who did more work, you get the choice. All right. Well, um I'll go. Okay. My number 10 is um how do I describe it? I would imagine if a Shirley Jackson novel, uh biopics abstract filmmaking and who's afraid of Virginia Woolf all got thrown into a blender. And then that would result in Shirley, which is uh, the new film. It's on Hulu right now. It stars Elizabeth Moss. Uh, It follows uh, Shirley Jackson, who uh, is probably most famous for the lottery, her short story that's often read in schools. And that's what I know her best from. And the film follows her and her husband as they take in a young professor a college professor and his wife as they move into a university and start their careers there and uh it imagines this relationship between shirley jackson as she's writing her new novel and the kind of power plays and sexual dynamics and all these things that could be real or imagined or you can't really tell it's kind of this constantly interweaving thing of you know like i said reality art what inspiration for the novel, you know, like, like you never know exactly where you're at. And I think for some people it can be disorienting and disconcerting and disturbing, but I really went with it. I think it's a great time. Uh, Shirley, have you, did you watch Shirley? I didn't. It's it's on my short list though. It'll be one of the ones I watch next, but I did not get to it. Um, Good. And I know, I know it'll be high up on my list. So I'm yeah. super glad. It, I didn't know if it was going to... I knew you liked it. I didn't know if it was top 10 worthy. Yeah. That's awesome. Uh, Elizabeth Moss is definitely giving... She's just like the reigning queen of like pain and agony right now on um, TV and film. Uh, she's just like an indie darling. She kind of can do no wrong. And like I said, the film is very Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. There's a lot of that in there. And it's a lot of it deals with this young bride who becomes good friends with Josephine Decker, or I'm sorry, Josephine Decker's the filmmaker, who becomes uh, good friends with Shirley Jackson. And if you don't know anything about Shirley Jackson, she was a shut-in. She often did not leave the house. She was a chain smoker. She was overweight. She was very vulgar and crass with people and um, very difficult. And it is about this relationship that forms between this young bride and this author and how this bride comes to influence the author and the sexual power plays and dynamics that get kind of get mixed up as the movie progresses and it's very it's told very abstractly and it's very art housey kind of in its direction and editing techniques and stuff so you know it's it's not exactly your standard biopic but it's it's scary in in that kind of like weird unnerving way it's not necessarily a horror film but It'll unnerve you, and it's strange and spooky, and yeah, I, I really recommend it, and it's easily available on Hulu. 
yeah, it is on Hulu for everyone who has that streaming service. Um, I'm not going to lie, Phil, you cut out there a lot. So hopefully I'm sure it all was picked up on your end. Uh, but I don't know what yeah. you said. Uh, I said it was good. You should check it out. Okay. Uh, my number 10 is Color Out of Space. The Richard Stanley uh, metaphysical horror sci-fi madcap movie with Nicolas Cage. Um, I know a lot of people have compared this movie to Mandy just because it's another recent Nicolas Cage kind of what the fuck movie. I don't think it's as strong as Mandy, but this was just a great, um, a great visual experience. This was just a great movie to kind of sit down and watch and trip out to. Um, I watched this late at night, you know, lights out, sound up really loud and just kind of reveled in the visuals and how how it kind of just goes there, you know? Um, yeah. I, I Like I said, I, I've seen so few movies that this is number 10. This would not be on my end of the year list. But for now, um, I thought this was a perfectly enjoyable movie. Uh, I I would like to watch it again, though, because I feel like... I don't know if I if I missed something, but uh, the movie just goes from zero to a hundred so quickly that it kind it kind of gave me whiplash a little bit. Um, yeah, but that but that said, it was very enjoyable. It's a very unique movie. I was just I'm very glad that Richard Stanley got to make another movie because he is a director. Uh, for those who don't know. <laughs> Uh, he's probably most infamously known for being the first director on the Island of Dr. Moreau movie from the mid nineties, which there's a great, there's a great documentary about that and, uh, the failures that came about with that shoot with Marlon Brando. But more importantly for genre fans, he made two fantastic genre movies before Dr. Moreau hardware in 1990, which is a great great horror sci-fi and dust devil in 1992 which is a really cool uh like western horror like a desert horror um that sadly the only version you can watch is uh this kind of mangled cut from the studio but i was able to get my hands on a leaked copy uh back at several years ago uh of his original cut and it's just absolutely brilliant and even the the net, like the 95 minute cut that's available you you see how great it is the visuals are just absolutely gorgeous it's so surreal so i think i think richard stanley is a very fascinating mind um and for yeah. that reason alone i think colorado space is, is worth checking out as far as i know it's only available to rent right now i don't think it's streaming for free anywhere but you can rent it for like three or four bucks on you know any vod site like amazon or itunes or wherever you get your movies yeah, I, I'm the certainly the visuals were what I remember the most from it. Um, I and I remember really appreciating the kind of practical gross out effects that it uses, especially towards the end. Um, yeah. I think, like you said, I think the screenplay probably could use a little, or it's I'm not sure how much of that worked and how much of it was just designed around these visual sequences. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's a like you were you you mentioned Mandy. I think it's it's also this also has Nicolas Cage in it, and if you kind of like the Cage 
renaissance of you know this performance art thing he's doing as an actor you know i think this is a i think he's he's been bigger but i think this is him relatively normal but i i don't know that i'd say he gives a good performance but he's it's a good cage performance i guess it's it's an enjoyable performance for sure Compa- yes yeah, it's, it's not quite the the psychedelic freak out that mandy is no it's it's more like an 80s uh it's like an 80s gore fest mixed with some uh with some mandy like visuals but it doesn't go as tripped out as mandy does but it's it's very visually it's a very enjoyable movie and uh nick cage is great yeah that's my number 10 cool uh my number nine i've also mentioned on this show before it is baccarat it is uh about a small brazilian town that is uh finding itself in a weird position once it's being deleted from the map and uh, suspicious activity begins to happen around the town and suddenly uh, a looming threat from outsiders begins to come down on them. And uh, yeah, the film is a mixture of art house and genre thrills. It's probably the most purely pulpy movie on my list, I think. But uh, it's it's a Brazilian film. It's got Udo Kier doing his craziness in it. And I've talked about it on the show. Uh, I don't. Did you ever get a chance to check this one out? Nope. Okay. I just want to, yeah, I'm trying to like, I, I'm, I don't, I'm, I don't want to step on your list. So I'm scared to like do it, but no, all right, please to go for it. And also, um, you know, I can't say I was ever too hyped to see it, but you just called it the, the pulpiest title on your list. Oh yeah. I mean, it's, it's a I violent, didn't know that. Uh, yeah. I mean, without, I don't want to tell to, it's like, I think i mentioned on a previous podcast, like the, the movie starts, as kind of like, a Brazilian, what you would suspect is like an art house movie or something, but it yeah, very quickly which is turns, what I thought it, it was. It very quickly turns into like a violent genre exploitation mixed with an art house movie. Whoa, so, okay, yeah. I'm gonna watch this. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's available to rent. Uh, same thing as previously mentioned. It's like two or three or three or four bucks to rent on Amazon or somewhere else that you might want to do your VOD services. But yeah, it's got. Phil, can uh, you tell the can you tell the people how to how to spell that title, please? B A C U R A U, Baccarat, and yeah, the show, the movie is about um, a town that goes missing from the map, and kind of, you know, it turns into a most dangerous game situation for this town, and the people that are coming to hunt them. Uh, you know, it, it has a lot to say about the about class and economy and all these other big topics that I don't kind of want to reveal because it would spoil it. But yeah, it's a very fun, very lively genre gore fest that has a lot to say actually. On top of all that, wow, uh, this is shocking to me. I thought it was, I thought it was pure art house drama. I did not know. According to IMDb, the genres it has listed are adventure, mystery, horror, thriller, and western. I have to watch this movie tonight. Yeah, you just thought it was like a sad movie about like a Brazilian yes. town or something? Yes. Oh, I no, did. no. Yeah, no, this is without a doubt. I'm looking at my top five. This is without a doubt the like kind of pulpiest, most fun movie on my list. Oh, man. Okay. Uh, uh, we're going to stop down for two hours and I will come back with a new list and a new number one. Hey, we're back. My number one is back around. Okay. Uh, no, but I will be watching that very soon. I, I'm shocked. Give me that number nine, baby. Uh, my number nine is very similar to your number nine uh, in that they both start with a B because it is Birds of Prey. 
Yeah, Harley um, Quinn and the or the emancipation of Harley Quinn. Yeah, I mean, this is probably the the last title that is you know obvious that I maybe have a dearth of titles for my top ten. But I I also I genuinely very much enjoyed Birds of Prey. This is not just like a lack of of options here. Um, I, I think there's some really great action in it. I do too, and I think Margot Robbie. You know, she's been on a meteoric rise basically since Wolf of Wall Street. And she's been nominated for an Oscar for I, Tanya, and for Bombshell. And I've I've liked her for the past half decade or seven years or whatever it's been. But to me, honestly, Birds of Prey was the title that I saw her in that I that I think it finally clicked for me of like, no, she she is a fucking star. Like she is an A grade movie star. And I don't know why it took me that long. I was never anti-Margot Robbie. I was never unimpressed with her. But I, I don't think it was until I got to see her really cut loose in this movie that it kind of just all came together for me. And I don't know. I thought this movie was such a fun ride. I thought I think it's what what WB, what Warner Brothers should aspire to right now with their or i'm sorry what dc should aspire to with their comics titles right now um because it's super fun it manages to tell an origin story without bogging you down with a story you have uh heard a million times before uh i think it's their as a film i think it's their most successful title so far and they could do themselves a favor and really look to the success of this movie as a as a um, a document going forward. Because well, I think I will say I did not do well at the box office, so they're not going to look to it for that for inspiration. Well, isn't that part of because of COVID? I mean, it was out for what like three weeks, and then uh, yeah, COVID but I think it's, no? it did not do well those first few weeks. Let me. Oh really? Uh, I didn't yeah, know it was it was a disappointment, but you know it has it. It certainly has its fans. Don't get me wrong. Well, but. not with me. I was a fan. And that's all I'll say. It's a, it's a dumb fun comic book movie, but it was a very dumb fun comic book movie. I mean, you know, like uh, titles like I think a, a natural comparison is Deadpool with uh you know like an antihero who's like very sarcastic and and witty and kind of crazy. And obviously Deadpool was hugely successful. It's already has spawned a sequel. I know there is a part three planned. To me, I think this is the type of movie Deadwood should have been. Uh, just very fun and uh, much more uh, likable, in my opinion. So I'll leave it there. That's my number nine. But hopefully it's not on my top ten at the end of the year. Okay. My number eight has nothing to do I can't come up with a segue I'm sorry okay my no, my number eight is the Dardens young Ahmed uh the story this is when I was talking about sad movies uh this is one of them it is uh the plot is simple but it's dark it's a it's about a young boy who's around 13 who has slowly grown more radical and violent in his religious beliefs the film tracks his journey after he attacks one of his teachers with a knife in the early parts of the film, after he discovers that she's dating a Jewish man. So his radicalism and looking at what's causing it and what it's been, what has to be done to break it is fascinating to me. And this film specifically, it may be about Islamic terrorism and the kind of seeds of that, but 
the ways that, that the boy is radicalized is through YouTube videos and this charismatic leader who's kind of spouting lies and emphasizing half-truths. And it all felt as American as apple pie to me. Um, and just with today's, all the things we've talked about, today's age of political partisanship and violent, the violence that erupts from it. And um, yeah, as filmmakers, the Dardens, the, the film is perfectly in line with their other, uh, I guess, moral thrillers is what I've heard them called. They're films that are often, they're pretty short run times, but they lack any kind of crazy camera work. But they're entirely about characters in a moral conundrum that often have larger political implications and make the films quite thrilling and tense for how small scale they often are. And Young Ahmed is just another one of their just so simple, they make it look easy, but it's just one of the best made, classically made, darkest, most fascinating films I've saw, I've saw this year. That's awesome. Um, uh, you told me about this via text a few days ago, and I had no idea they even had a new movie out to show how out of the loop I've gotten because they've been a pair of my favorite filmmakers for a while. Yeah, it's sad, but, you know, like I said, it's kind of heavy, but it's it's a it's a very good film. It's only like 85 minutes long, so it's it's not going to take up too much of your time. It is only available on the Criterion channel, though. That It had its premiere there. That is the only place I believe it is streaming right now. I believe you're right. Um, my number eight... <laughs> uh, I would, Phil, if you haven't seen it, I, I assume you haven't, I would recommend not because you'll probably just roll your eyes at me. My number eight is VFW. I watched uh, the trailer just like an hour ago when you mentioned that's what you're watching. I was like, oh, I don't know what that is. And then I watched the trailer. I was like, oh, I know exactly what that is. <laughs> it's a Tom movie, not a film movie. Uh, for those who don't know, v- VFW is uh, an ode to the splatter films of the 1980s. It's it's almost like a, a green room without the um, uh, uh, without the the class satire at play, basically. Um, it could have been much higher on it on my list because the things it does well, which are pay homage to uh, like the grindhouse gore films of the 1980s, which I love so much, like the splatter violence, the absurd action, almost action comedy because it's so uh, absurdly violent. It does have a plot like Green Room where uh, a group of war vets basically have to defend their VFW house from... Uh, like a, a pack of rabid drug addicts, basically a, a group of junkies. The reason why it's not higher on my list because it does execute those things well. The reason why a movie like Green Room was one of my absolute favorites of that year that it came out and of the last decade is I think Green Room is filled with a lot of depth um, in a way that was did not seem that difficult to pull off. Like it wasn't like to me that green room had to fundamentally change the type of movie it wanted to be right to be as successful as it was um this movie is basically it's very much an us against them movie war vets versus drug addicts and it doesn't go beyond that at all like i i thought it really could have it really had an opportunity to try to make some type of statement just like sneak something in there amongst all the splatter house that we get to see you know because that's like as much as i love that uh bygone era of filmmaking a lot of its joys were very superficial right and i think if you're going to try to pay homage to that a, a genre of a bygone era like that 
you should do it by embracing that spirit, but also um, using all that we've learned and know now to try to update the story a little bit, right? And elevate the genre. And while this is a great, great throwback, very fun film, I'll, I'll watch it again at some point. Um, it doesn't really go beyond that. Otherwise, it would be higher on my list. But if you like that type of movie, I think you'll have a blast with uh, VFW. Cool. Um, I, I did like the cast. Um, it, it was a lot of good character actors. Great cast. Yep. All yeah, right. Stephen uh, Lang is in it. Fred Williamson's in it. William Sadler's in it. Uh, uh, Martin Cove, the the bad sensei from Karate Kid, is in it. It's a good cast. Oh, and uh, George Went. George Went is in it. All right. So, um, yeah. Cool. I have not seen it. So, but I did. Like I said, I saw the trailer and I was like, it basically exactly as you described. I was like, that looks like a good genre exercise if it's done well, but you know, not a lot else. But like you said, if you're into that kind of thing, it's worth going in. It's, it's going into as it. a genre exercise. It is done very, very well. Yeah. Did you watch it on shutter? Where's that one at? Uh, Oh God. I hope it's not on shutter. Cause I rented that shit on Amazon. <laughs> oh, okay. Oh, just checking. Yeah. I actually forgot to look on shutter to see it might be on shutter. If not, it's on Amazon for I think three ninety nine. Cool. Uh, my number seven is a little movie, very small, called Miss Juneteenth. It is uh, about a former beauty queen and a single mom who prepares her rebellious teenage daughter for the Miss Juneteenth pageant. It is a Texas beauty pageant uh, that is an all-black um, uh, beauty pageant that is put on by the kind of upper-ups, uh, the upper echelon of society and basically this mom was a former winner who is now working very hard to make sure that her daughter wins because you get a huge scholarship and you get a a chance at a future and basically the mom screwed up her scholarship and her life kind of got away from her for a number of reasons and the film is about her kind of putting that pressure on her daughter to kind of succeed where she failed and it's a it's a beautiful story about a mother and daughter. There's a lot of the Miss Juneteenth uh, aspect of it puts so much of the racial elements in context with white America and beauty pageants and what we consider beautiful uh, in different women and different races. And yeah, it's just it's also just a really sweet small scale love story between a mother and a daughter. And it's got a lot of you know undertones. It's very well told. And the actress Nicole Bahari is uh she's a movie star i think um she's the star of the movie and i think she's going to be cast in a shit ton of things going off of this movie i unfortunately only knew her before this as one of the girls that michael fassbender has sex with in shame um uh yes that was her big but that was the biggest role i'd known her from before but now that i've seen her in this that that woman can act her ass off she's fantastic um it's a very very good movie i would recommend seeking it out cool uh, my number seven, we don't have to spend time on it because we devoted a whole episode to it back in the day. It's The Way Back, the Ben Affleck basketball coach movie. I just, yeah. I love, I love basketball movies, man. I don't know what to tell you. I love basketball movies. This movie actually has good basketball scenes. Ben Affleck gives a good performance. Uh, go listen to our old episode. But what I, what I really liked about it is it didn't go the way I expected it to go. Um, and it's a movie that looks like a white savior movie, smells like a white savior movie, acts like a white savior movie, but ends up not being a white savior movie. And I really appreciated that. So The Way Back is my number seven. 
Yeah, Affleck gives a good performance. It was the last film I saw before COVID kicked in, or the last film I saw in theaters before COVID kicked in and shut it all down. Uh, yeah, it's, I, I'll double down on your recommendation and make sure everyone checks that out, especially if you're a dad or are looking for something to show your dad. I, I feel like this is a, a great future Hall of Fame dad movie. Nice, yeah, I, I could see that. All right, maybe too much alcohol, I don't know, but... <laughs> but it all doesn't right. glorify it, so that's okay. Sure, sure. Um, all right. Uh, any, anything else you want to say about that before we move on? No, move on. All right, all right. So this one is um, a bit of a cheat, but uh, I make my lists that are based on U.S. release dates. This is a 2014 film that just received an American release along with a couple other titles from filmmaker Hong Sang-soo and it's been released by Grasshopper Films who their releases on VO on their VOD service has introduced me to a number of very good small films this year through their website they've uh, really done well with the video on demand stuff and I saw a number of titles through them and so I definitely recommend checking out Grasshopper Films if you're looking for some good indies to check out but this film is called Hill of Freedom and it's about uh, Quan who returns from Sao and from the mountains and is given a packet of letters from this guy named Maury and who's an old flame. She's supposed to be meeting up with, and he's not in town waiting for her like he was supposed to be. And, uh, but instead he's left a stack of letters and almost immediately Quan drops these undated letters and they scatter around and she even loses one or two of them. And the rest of the film is about her reading those letters and about and her discovering Maury's experience in this town. But her, as well as us in the audience having no way of knowing where each of these incidents take place in the chronological or in the chronology because she dropped the letters. So it allows some of the elements of the story to kind of be constantly recontextualized and for us to make several leaps due to missing information. And the structure doesn't even really reveal itself until, you know, halfway through your watching. Uh, and it's kind of about subtle games and, you know, visual cues and stuff. It's, it's real filmmaker nerd shit. I'll admit um, this is probably without a doubt the most art house, like, esoteric film on my list it's you don't uh, say <laughs> it's uh, yeah it's some real art house shit that probably is only going to appeal to a small audience but i'm in that audience and uh, i can't deny that the film kind of swept me up and it's actually not a chore to watch either because it's only 65 minutes long so it's a very quick watch and it's also very warm and funny and it's actually a romance and so it's it, it sounds like it's kind of a chore based on what i'm saying but the pleasures of it are largely formal and largely film nerd shit, but the story itself is actually very light and fun, and it's not a heavy movie in any way, shape, or form. But it, it actively engaged me, and I it does such crazy things with time that I just kind of kept being thrown by and taken in by. Like it'll have the, the main character is carrying a book with him the whole time that's called Time, and people ask him like in the second or third scene, they're like, "What's the book about?" He's like, oh, it's about how time has no meaning. And so basically that becomes the, you know, the the prism by which the rest of the film kind of goes about its narrative. And so characters will like, a, a father and daughter will leave a room and the door will close. And then one second later, it'll open back up and someone will walk in and be like, hey, I'm looking for that, the, that daughter and her father. Like, where are they? And they're like, oh, they left hours ago. Like, you, you, you missed them already. And you're like, well, surely they just passed each other in the hallway. But like the film does strange things like that, where you're like, oh, time is that, that that just threw me that small thing that you just did. 
And I don't know. It just it's film nerd shit. I loved it. I don't know if you're into that. Sh- if you're into that shit, go check it out. That sounds cool. And Hong Sang Soo is the director, right? Yeah, he has a very um, minimal minimalist storytelling technique where he's yeah off, often s- wide, very some zooms, single take. Yeah, well, I was gonna say when you said that it's the the plot is it's actually very watchable. That's my experience seeing his movies. You know, a lot of his movies can feel uh, very similar and of a of a larger piece, but they're always very watchable. They're always very just easy to sit down and get through so if uh if you guys don't know that filmmaker i would recommend checking him out and hey why not start with phil's number six of the year and hey like i said it's only whatever number six and it's only like i said it's only 65 minutes long so it's not a big investment of your time well my number six is also maybe a cheat in that it is also an hour long and it was a documentary uh that premiered on disney plus it is elephant (laughs) it is one of those uh nature docs that come out every year normally in theaters but obviously because of covid this one premiered streaming and i don't don't know man this is just where my where my heart is right now (laughs) i I need a movie like elephant to make me feel good it's the i hope your number one is just like this youtube video of puppies that you send me (laughs) It, elephant is the story of a, a herd of elephants uh, making a very long trek to their new home. And they face trials and tribulations along the way. They learn to love. Now, um, I, don't, I don't know what to say. It's, it's one of those, you know, Planet Earth style documentaries that just grab me. I love, I should say, I love. I love elephants. They're my favorite animal. Do, do you? I didn't know that. I, I don't do. Think I I'm, that. A, I'm a big fan of elephants. Elephants are my, yeah, my single favorite animal in the world. I think they're amazing creatures. I want to, I want to be an elephant. I, I want, I, I love elephants so much. So, because normally these movies, I, I, you know, I don't see in theaters. And like, if I get to them, it's just because I'm, I decide to throw it on. Like I'm, not, I'm never really actively seeking out. They're good these background. Nature ducks. Yeah, they're good background. I love the Planet Earth series and stuff like that. But I'm never like, you know, every year they have Disney has that that animal documentary they put out like penguins or raccoons or whatever, you know. And like elephant is just another in a series of that. And maybe I should watch more of them. Maybe maybe I'm missing out on one of my favorites of the year every year because. Uh, I absolutely loved Elephant. It was what I needed. It made me feel really good. I can't believe it's still so high up on my list. Honestly, I wanted to put it higher. It was actually, <laughs> it was it was actually my number five, right before I said it. And I'm like, why don't I make this number six? Because this is embarrassing. But uh, yeah, I love, I fucking love Elephant, man. Everyone just go watch Elephant on Disney Plus. It's great. It'll make you feel really good. But it's also sad. But it's great. Elephant's great. Yeah. Our lists are so different. And don't confuse yourself and watch a movie that's basically a reenactment of Columbine. Do not watch that elephant. Watch the Disney movie Elephant. If there is a literal elephant on the cover, you are watching the right elephant. You want to, just a quick side story about my wife. Um, She's kind of really into true crime. And uh, one of our, on one of our earlier dates, you actually, I know, just read the book within the last year or so, the Columbine book 
by Dave Cullen. Uh, Dave Cullen, yeah. I read it early. I, it was a 2020 read, but pre-COVID when my heart was uh, stonier. That was one of, on our first dates or something, I recommended the book and said, well, I have a copy if you want to borrow it. And she just like swallowed it whole. She read it in like two sittings and just, we, we talked about it for a while. But so she always has had this fascination with that stuff. And I, well, we were watching something and they showed a clip from Elephant and it was the, it was a scene of them walking around the school doing the shooting. And she like perked up and was like, what's that? What, what's that movie? I haven't seen that. And I was like, Jesus, like that, you, that's the scene you saw. And that's what makes you like, just <laughs> you're like, a freak. Let's, let's go watch that. Well, here's the, the, seen... the bad thing is there's a, no, go ahead. Sorry. What? I was just going to say the bad thing is there's a DVD copy in our bedroom. Like I was like, yeah, I have it right over there. But you know, like that's weird that you asked for it after seeing that scene. I'm a little concerned, but to be fair, I own it, so can't really judge. Exactly. Yeah. I was going to ask if she's say? seen it. Has she seen? We need to talk about Kevin or read the book. Oh yeah, I, I don't know if we've talked about it, but that movie like scarred her for life. Um, uh, I have one of my great dreams uh, is to one day just be like, "Hey, honey." You see this nice little woman? Her name's Lynn. Let me let me introduce you to her. She'd be like, oh, that's nice. Like, I love your accent. It's really cute. And then I'm going to be like, this is the woman who directed uh, We Need to Talk About Kevin. And Shell's just going to like freak out. She's going to melt. She's going to start screaming in fear because that movie just, I think, brought up any number of fears that Shell already has about being a mother. And it just scared the ever-living life out of her. Like, if you if you say that title in front of Shell... She will like actively stop what she's doing to like tell you how upset that movie made her. Even even though she perked up from a school shooting scene in another movie, I think that's different because like that feels sep- even though she works at a school, but that feels somehow separate to her. Whereas like being a mother is something that she's like actively contemplating. So when she sees this movie, that's like even if your son kills or does a mass murder there's still going to be a part of you that's always connected to them and always love them. And she's just like, fuck that. Ugh. And just like all of her fears about, you know, like what if you give birth to a serial killer? What if you, you know, have this and this and this, you know, it kind of like brought so many of them to life for her. So that movie freaks her the fuck out. I, uh, I saw that movie when it came out in theaters and then I read the book for the first time a year or two ago, the novel. And, um, you know, the, the novel is, is a series of diary entries, basically, from the mother. A series of diary entries slash letters that she's writing to her husband. And, obviously, spoiler alert for We Need to Talk About Kevin. Um, obviously, having seen the movie, I knew the end result. You know, like what ends up happening yeah. with yeah. Kevin. And with... Uh, with with Kevin's dad and sibling. Um, but the way it's written, you know, you, you're you left wondering. And I also wasn't sure if the book was going to stray. Like maybe, maybe the father did just leave or something, you know, because she's writing to him in real time, even though it takes place after the events, which the, the end of the book is leading up to. And then you find out that yeah. she's writing to her dead husband because Kevin murdered him before going on the school shooting. And even though I knew the end result, it's one of the most gut wrenching endings to a novel I've ever read in my life. It is so fucking brutal, man. Um, Oh yeah. 
But yeah, right. that's my little. We need to talk about Kevin's story. Cool. All right. You want to talk? Elephant's great. Elephant <laughs> speaking. Elephant. Not What's the school. Five, not buddy. the school shooting one. The Disney. Puzzle. Not the school shooting one. The Disney one narrated by uh, Meghan Markle. Oh yeah, I forgot about that. Um, I, I shell watched it. I saw parts of it. I have not seen it in its entirety, so I have not seen the entire journey of these elephants. I apologize. That's okay. All right. My number five is a film by Kitty Green starring Julia Garner. It is called The Assistant. Listen, his schedule has shifted. Does 7 p.m. work? Still at the hotel or? Yes. What? This is turkey. I said chicken. <laughs> There's a girl waiting. Oh, her. She's been here before, a few times. What is it? The wife. Say he's in an important meeting. No, say he's in a screening. Where is he? What did you say to him? What did you say? They told me you were smart. I overreacted. It was not my place to question your decision. I will not let you down again. You know you can always come to us, right? Come to us first, okay? The last two checks. Uh, it's a film. That shares a lot in common, I noticed, with my number four, which we'll get to here in a bit. Uh, both of them are small-scale dramas about young women. Uh, they're directed by women. And uh, it's about women who are on very small journeys, and they end up tackling some major conflict of our time. Uh, this film in particular is about a young woman who's played by Julia Garner, who is on her fifth week at a new job as an assistant to a movie mogul who's clearly modeled after Harvey Weinstein. The film, I'm sure, will be watched by plenty of people who will claim it's... Uh, a story where nothing happens or something like that. They'll be like, oh, this is a boring movie. But on the surface, that might be true, but I think that fails to address what the movie is actually attempting to explore, and that is through her role as an assistant, we see the way that she preps his office, the small clues that she sees around the office, like actresses' earrings on the floor and stuff like that, actresses acting weird who have to come back to the office, Um, it being common knowledge that lying to this guy's wife will be a daily occurrence and expectation of her job. Um, overhead, overheard comments that are said about as jokes, but clearly are based in some reality. And the quietly abusive and domineering ways that this movie executive, who's never actually seen in the film, runs his life and this office. And Garner slowly begins to suspect something awful is happening around her, and she slowly realizes there's very little that she can do about it, and begins to see why those around the office find it easier or better for their careers to turn a blind eye. Uh, the film's about behavior and glances and the invisible traps that male societies have placed around women in the workplace since the beginning of time. It's a quiet film, but there's you know no big speeches or grand revelations, but inside it is a story of every office and every corporation in this country and understanding why people stay silent when they suspect something awful is happening, whether they want to or not, is pretty vital, I think, to explore right now as we go forward in this uh, post-Me Too movement. Yeah, um, the assistant is my number four of the year, so I'll just get that out of the way now. Cool, cool. Glad, uh, glad, you, glad you saw it. I love this movie very, very much. Um, I think everything you just said is spot on, including the fact that someone may see it and say nothing happens. But if you're keyed into what the movie's going for and what it's talking about, it's one of the most in my opinion, uh, one of the most like low key suspenseful movies of the year. Yeah, yeah. It's Even the, like I said, you, it's it, it's scary. When you yeah, when you um, 
you know, like you said, the the boss is probably modeled on Harvey Weinstein. And moments like the assistant finding the earring on the floor and the the pretty woman who she meets in the elevator to surreptitiously give the earring back. And you just read the body language of the woman who picks up the who picks up her piece of jewelry. And is it is she embarrassed because like it's basically a tacit admission that she slept with this married man or did something worse happen? You know, did something bad happen to that woman in that yeah. office? And I think the and movie like, cause she's almost yeah, on the sorry. verge of like wanting to say something or she seems like terrified to be back in that place. Right. Right. Yeah. And there's never a and... direct, sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say in those scenes like that, when we're saying like nothing happens, if you're actually watching that scene, it's just a woman handing another woman an earring. And I think that's the surface level. Like, well, nothing happened in that scene, but it's like, no, you, if you look at the body language, this girl suspects this about this other girl, what are they thinking in this scene? Like it's so that's where the film really lives. And like I, I, I kind of tried to allude to like the movie really builds on these moments that are kind of, you feel them or you understand them, but nothing was actually happened. So that's sort of the point because there's the big kind of stand standout scene of the movies when she goes to HR and uh-huh. taking all that stuff there, you know, it's kind of, well, I saw this and I heard this and it's like, well, that was a joke. Like what, you know, it's kind of like going into how these abuses kind of continue and are turned a blind eye towards. Yeah. You basically um, come to realize that this boss at the very least is a womanizer that much is obvious. Uh, even you come to know his wife is aware of it. Um, and throughout the course of the film, this new assistant uh, played wonderfully by Julia Garner, an actress who I've loved for a while. She's been in a lot of great movies and TV shows. She was on The Americans for a while. Um, she comes to realize that the entire office knows about it. Like, this is an open secret shared by hundreds of people. And... The tipping point for her seems to be when uh, this young woman, you know, probably like college age, 18 to 21, something like that, is flown out from the middle of the Midwest and just offered a job that is one of the most sought after entry level positions in the film industry to be an assistant for this high powered producer. And it becomes pretty obvious that she has no real experience in the industry and got the job because the, the, her boss likes fucking her. Um, that's yeah. But like, and, and like, like I said, there's, that's just felt, you know, it's like, we see that, but like, you can't report that, you know, you can't report that. And nothing is ever admitted to like, it's all innuendos. It's all, uh, seeing, not wanting to believe what you're seeing and not wanting to talk about it because we're never, we, one thing we definitely never know is, is this guy out and out raping these women against their will. There's never really any evidence of that, but what there is definitely evidence of is he is using his power to sleep with women. And by uh, these women sleeping with this man, they are getting stuff in return. Like for this young girl, it's getting a job, a highly sought after job in the film industry. Towards the end of the movie, an actress spends a lot of time in his office and an employee at that business, higher up than the assistant, probably some junior producer or something, says to 
the main character, don't worry, she's going to get way more out of it than he will. Trust me. Basically, like, she's sleeping her way to the top or something like that. All the other guys in the office know about it. And they all accept it. They all just let it happen. No one says anything. She tries to say something and is basically told in so many words, I can report this for you, but it will be the end of your career. It's going to be over for you. Nothing will happen. Uh, All you're going to do is piss off everybody. They're going to laugh it off and you're going to pack your bags. So I could do this if if you want to report it still. We can report this. And he's basically telling her, like, don't put me in this position either. You know? Yeah. Um, And it's it's just a really great and very believable example of the insidious nature of abusive men in power and how they're able to how they've been able to thrive for so long. And on on another level, as someone who has worked a similar job in like a high pressure uh, film uh, business like I have been for a while. Uh, obviously let it be known my bosses are nowhere like the guy in this movie they are they're great people but just the seeing her go through the motions of the long hours and all of the different responsibilities she has to do from like super important stuff that the company relies on to the most banal like janitorial bullshit uh was was very triggering I will just say that. And and they also they also get it exactly right. I mean, they all those details, dude, they nail. I can say that from years of experience. Um so yeah, I thought this was a really great great movie. And again, I, I can't emphasize this enough. 87 minutes. It's short. It's quick. Oh, yeah. it flies. It flies by. Yeah, that's that that's been a big uh perk for me lately. I'm like, "Oh, it's it's less than 100 minutes. Perfect. Let's do it." Yep. And Julia Garner, uh, to reiterate, is very great. I think one of the best performances of the year for me. All right. What's your number five? My number five is a little similar to another title in my top ten. I don't remember if you've seen this one or not. Um, I'm probably going to get a lot of shit for it because it was not well received. Uh, It was actually delayed for a very long time. It was supposed to come out last year. But in my opinion... Despite its flaws, despite its clumsiness, despite its obviousness, 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 am I saying? Yes, obviousness. I am calling it now. In 10 to 15 years, this will be considered a cult genre classic. My number five is The Hunt. Oh, I like The Hunt. I actually felt like I liked The Hunt more than other people did. What is happening? What is all of this? Did you see that article? Every year, these liberal elites kidnap a bunch of normal folks like us and hunt us for sport. The last I heard, free speech still exists. Don't First Amendment me. It wasn't real. Everybody get it! We were joking. There's been a killing spree. You gotta come here right now. You actually believed we were hunting human beings for sport. (laughs) But you are. You did? Okay, good. I didn't know if you had seen it or not. I was so pleasantly surprised by the hunt. I I watched it this past week and I was uh, the whole time like, all right, when is shit going to hit the fan? Because nobody liked this movie, right? Yeah. It it never happened. I think the political stuff, I remember it being like, you know, kind of like hit and miss, but also like 
my takeaway was that it was a lot of fun and that Betty Gilpin was a fucking movie star. Yeah, it's here's the thing. And this is why I'm very confident in this prediction of mine. This is something I feel like I've this is a theory that has been brewing in my head for a while. So the political stuff in this is very it's topical and it's satirical, but it's very on the nose. It's very surface level, right? Like it's openly sure. it's openly talking about like Pizzagate and uh, like Jeffrey Epstein's um, Lolita Express stuff like those type of conspiracy theories in a very obvious way. Like it's not a movie like The Assistant, something we just talked about that is dealing basically with the Me Too movement and abusive machismo men in power um, and the patriarchy in a very like subtle tasteful way right the hunt is doing the exact opposite yeah i like i liked it i didn't mind that it, i didn't mind that it was not the most well, yeah this is what i'm gonna say yeah, yeah yeah this well this is my point so those are the types of movies when they're genre films that when they come out are not really appreciated because they're so obvious in the moment like yeah that's what we're all discussing dude obviously but when enough time passes and you look at history and you look at certain movements in history, a lot of it is viewed in these broad strokes. And that's what the hunt does. It, it goes over these topics in very broad strokes in a very entertaining genre way. And that's the type of movie that people are going to look towards in 10 to 15 years when we're hopefully out of this Democrat, crazy Republican, alt-right conspiracy theory nonsense about Hillary Clinton eats babies type of bullshit, right? Hopefully in 10 to 15 years, we're out of that. And we'll be able to look to a movie like The Hunt and people are going to say like, hey, there was a movie out that perfectly criticized all of that. And this is that movie. Now, it obviously has flaws. It's silly. It's a little dumb. But it's super entertaining and it has another it had another great technique uh, for one thing like you just said with the assistant it's very short i don't even think it clocks in at 90 minutes if it does it is with credits um and it also has this thing that has become uh kind of common with some horror movies lately we saw it with uh quentin tarantino's death death proof and we saw it with the friday the 13th remake where it looks like we're setting up the the story of the movie and we're going to be introduced to our, our main group of characters, but then it quickly becomes apparent that these are not going to be our main group of characters, right? Like, we're introduced to right. uh, spoilers for people who haven't seen the movie, and I highly recommend you do, but we're introduced to some, some bigger talent, I guess, like uh, more well-known Hollywood people early on in the movie that you think will be our stars going forward. And no, they are iced immediately to the point where I thought we were going to see one round of the hunt. And then it was going to cut to like a year later and we were going to see a, a second round of it. Now that we know what the game is and follow an entirely new group of survivors. And then that isn't what happened. So it surprised me again that we still followed this initial group. So I thought it was it played really well. It its pacing was perfect. Like whatever flaws the movie has, the pacing is not one of them. It ends up explaining more than I ever expected the movie would. 
in terms of the actual like machinations behind what led to us being at this point in the story and how every individual major character got to this point in the story uh and it explained it in a way that i was able to buy into that uh, of all the surface level satire it's doing i thought they actually handled the backstory in a pretty elegant way so long story short the hunt was an absolute blast my number five of the year uh don't believe the bad reviews go watch it yeah i i agree with you like i definitely can see down the road people being like hey i think that movie's a blast i don't know why the critics gave it a bad rap and also like i i completely agree with you there and i also agree that yeah as i was watching it i was kind of like this is kind of fun i don't quite understand what anyone was up in arms about and i think a lot of it was because the movie was delayed several times and it was because of i don't know if you remember but but they were like, oh, there's a movie with uh, them killing Trump people or something like that, you know? And, like, I think that word got out and Trump called the movie disgusting. And that's why it got delayed and pushed back. And then it got pushed back again because of COVID. And the movie's had terrible luck. But, yeah, I think down the road it will find an audience, hopefully. It, it's going to find an audience for sure. All right. Number four. You said your number four was The Assistant, yep. right? All right, my number four is uh, Never Rarely, Sometimes Always. It's a film I've actually mentioned several times on the podcast at this point. Um, It's from filmmaker Eliza Hittman. According to IMDb, it is about inseparable best friends and cousins Autumn and Skylar precariously navigate the vulnerability of female adolescence in rural Pennsylvania. When Autumn mysteriously falls pregnant, she's confronted by conservative legislation without mercy for blue-collar women seeking an abortion. With Skylar's unfailing support and bold resourceful board resources, Jesus, I can't read. Whatever, fuck it. Um, this, you know, the story I've mentioned it multiple times. It tracks two women who are trying to deal with a weekend alone in New York City. They have almost no money. They have nowhere to stay, and while they're trying, all the while they're trying to get an abortion. And it's a hard film to watch. It's terribly sad. It's bleak, and there are moments of hope, but they're few and far between. And in many ways. It's like an American reaction to four months, three weeks, and two days. It's very much, for me, a mirror film to that one, if anyone's seen that. Uh, That's a wonderful film, but also very difficult to watch. This is difficult material, but I think it's an important reminder that just because something is legal in America, that doesn't mean it's easy or available to everyone. And it examines how state-to-state the rules change, how adults may have ulterior religious motives to the advice they're giving, how... Medical procedures are still very expensive for women who frequently are seeking that procedure because they aren't in a good financial situation. Uh, you know, it's it's so much more. It's a, it's personal. It's it's quiet. It's human, but it's also, I think, very angry and cynical and horrifying on on so many levels. As you watch these young women, and you you just want to reach out and help them. And yeah, it's a sad movie. Like I said, kind of like the assistant. It's very quiet and internal, and kind of just about this journey of of in this case two young women. But it's also tackling this really large idea, and yeah, it's it's a hard watch, but um, yeah, one of the, one of the best movies I saw this year. She's not ready to be a mom. Where else could you go? Nowhere in Pennsylvania. I think you should try another place. Going to New York? What are you doing there? Seeing family and stuff. Used to be. Who came with you today? My cousin. Do you have a place to stay tonight? I know you came from far away. 
I'll figure it out. This area's closed. Do not sleep here. Where's the rest of the money? La, 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 la. I want to make sure that you're safe. La, 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 la. Yeah, that's one I really want to get to. I'm ashamed that I haven't yet because I've known it's been a favorite of yours for a while. And uh, yeah, it's just one of those titles that seemed sad. And I didn't want to watch it for that reason. But I, I do, I, I plan on watching it soon. I will get to that one. It is sad. I'm not going to lie. Like, it's one of the ones where you're like, uh, you know, like, there's a few of these, like, even like Hill of Freedom, you know, I'm like, you know, this one, it might sound heavy, but it's really not. This one, I'm not going to lie. This one's heavy. This one's sad. And there's not a lot of, like, laughs in this one. Yeah. I, uh, that's what I expected. Um, okay. So sh- do you want to give your three or should we just switch up the order now and i'll go with my three first yeah let's switch it up because i i i know we're gonna have at least one more title that we share but i'm curious about the the rest of it yeah my number three i don't think i'm gonna surprise you with the rest of my titles but my number three is the invisible man um ah of course what happened to him adrian's dead listen you're getting your freedom back okay He said that wherever I went, he would find me, walk right up to me, and I wouldn't be able to see him. Adrian is dead. He's not dead. He has figured out a way to be invisible. This is, I guess that's not in your top 10 then, right? No, it is not. It's in my top 20, but not my top 10. Okay, cool. Um, So yeah, so I'll just talk about it now. Uh, This movie, I, okay, I love the universal monster movies, the the ones from the 30s and 40s. Invisible Man um, maybe isn't my favorite of the original like the the elite eight of the universal monster movies you know with you know dracula although i like it much better than the the original dracula but like frankenstein bride of frankenstein wolfman dracula a creature from the black lagoon um phantom of the opera maybe it's not my favorite of those but overall as a series the invisible man might be my favorite i really enjoy those titles and whenever uh, Universal decides to try their hand at rebooting any of those classic monsters. I get my hopes up super high, and then I'm always uh, highly disappointed. But The Invisible Man, uh, it actually surpassed my expectations. Be- maybe they were a little tempered because of the recent failures with the Tom Cruise mummy and shit like that. But, you know, Lee Winnell was the writer and director of this reboot, and he is most known for helping uh, make the Saw and Insidious franchises um, with James Wan. And then he wrote and directed a really great little uh, sci-fi body horror movie called Upgrade a few years ago, which if you like RoboCop, it's a movie you should totally check out because... It is indebted to that movie while still very much being its own thing. So I, I had I had hope for this movie, and I think he knocked it out of the park because he updates this story into a 21st century story, and he actually completely rewrites the rules of The Invisible Man. Um, 
the the original story of it. He completely makes it his own and focuses on the victim instead of the perpetrator, which is a new element for the Invisible Man series. Normally it is about the Invisible Man himself, which in the original story he is uh you know a brilliant serial killer basically um this movie follows elizabeth moss someone we've talked about earlier who is the wife of uh this brilliant scientist who ends up becoming the invisible man but it becomes her story and by making that change uh is what allows lee Wanell to update this story in the me too era and talk about the insidious nature of an abusive relationship and what what may keep a person involved with an abuser and how hard it is, even when you work up the courage to leave an abuser, how hard it is to stay separated from that abuser. And it uses the guise of this classic horror tale to tackle these weighty subjects, all while being very taut, suspenseful. The last third i guess the the final third act of the movie is pretty much non-stop action and excitement after an hour of a very slow build which to me works better as a character drama than it even does as a horror movie uh, up until the final 45 minutes where it just goes absolutely bananas in a very satisfying genre way i don't know man i thought i thought the invisible man was absolutely fantastic um very easily could end up being my favorite studio film of the year, let alone my favorite horror film of the year. I was I was a huge, huge fan of this movie, and I cannot wait for the Blu-ray to buy it and devour the special features and all that jazz, because I think Lee Winnell, in my opinion, I know he directed one of the Insidious sequels, like Part 3 or something, to get his directing career going, but since then he's done Upgrade and now this, and uh, he's a big, big two-for-two two in my book. Yeah, I really like this film. I... um had similar feelings as you. I don't have the the same affinity for the IP, but for me, I I was really taken by what a smart take on the material it was. And like you said, Elizabeth Moss's performance. And there's just a couple like the scene in the restaurant in particular with the knife is one of the was one of the few audience gasp moments that I got to experience in theaters this year. And uh, you know, I'll always be grateful for that. And there's some wonderful twists and yeah, there's even kind of a setup for a sequel, so we'll see how that how that does and if the audiences want that. But, you know, I think they're doing good by the series after the kind of uh, ill-fated Dark Universe launch that they had. But, yeah, I, mean, I like you said, it's, it's very smart. It's well done. And I think if you're a fan of the genre and a fan of popcorn films, like, this is as, as good as you're going to get this year. Yep. All right. My number three, I've also mentioned on the show any number of times. It is called Driveways. It's a film directed by a new filmmaker named Andrew Ahn. This film just, it makes me cry a lot. Um, It stars Hong Chao, who I have always loved uh, ever since she appeared in Inherent Vice. And it is the one of the final film performances of Brian Dennehy, who passed earlier this year. And uh, like I said, the film just makes me cry. It is, it's gentle and quiet. And within it, there's just so much kindness and these kind of grace notes and acts of humanity and it's about uh these moments of connection between people who you wouldn't normally think would complement each other so well and kind of like we've been saying already it's it's 83 minutes long so you know i can't, can't i can't stress enough it's it's a quick watch um it's probably like 80 minutes with credits and 
I swear that like from about minute 60 on, I'm like a puddle of tears for the rest of the movie. The final like 15 or 20 minutes, I'm just, I'm a mess. And I, I'm not sure I can explain it. Maybe it's just the world being so scary and mean and shitty right now that seeing this like quiet tale of kindness and friendship is just kind of exactly the thing I need right now. But uh, the story centers on a young boy who's shy and he likes the quiet and I'm the father of a shy daughter. So I saw a lot of that to resonate with in the film. And uh, yeah, the film tracks this relationship of a young boy who's uh, staying in a house after his aunt died while his mother goes through the house and tries to sell off the goods and he befriends the neighbor next door, played by Brian Dennehy. And this young boy who likes the quiet and is kind of mature for his age befriends this old man who, uh, you know, is, still has some spark left in him, I guess. And, uh, yeah, they just kind of form an instant bond. And it's the kind of film that I think sounds maybe depressing or terribly indie from the description. And I don't know, maybe it is, but to me it felt like it had more of the emotional and formal control of other Asian filmmakers like Ozu or Hirokazu Koreeda more than like Little Miss Sunshine or St. Vincent or whatever. So I can't say enough about it. I hope more people see it. It's it's an emotional wallop. I, I love it. It's called Driveways. Who's Vera? My wife. Is she dead? Yep. She did a lot of little things I never noticed until she was gone. Help! People things, you know, keep in touch with people. These yours? My neighbors. She knew everybody's birthday. You know what I wish? I wish we could do that all over again. We'd be a little more deliberate. Uh, take our time. Take a good look at stuff. Man, I haven't thought of the movie St. Vincent <laughs> since the minute I walked out of that theater. Yeah, it's not it's like just, that. I promise. It was very, very funny. And not that that movie was god-awful or anything. It's just like St. Vincent is such a perfect, perfect title choice to exemplify what you were just trying to say right there. Not to be confused with St. Vincent, the musician, who is fantastic. Um yeah, that's one I haven't gotten to No, I'm to referring either. to the the Bill Murray dramedy is what I'm yes. referring to. Yes, exactly. Um, okay, down to the top two. My number two, you know what it is. It is The Vast of Night. What's going on, Everett? 718 here at WOTW. We got a sound we'd like to play that seems to be bouncing around the valley tonight. Yes, I have a story that might be helpful. I can tell you what's going on sound we heard out in the desert. It was coming from thousands of feet higher than anything could fly. They've come here before. They've liked this place. They always have. 91 Ooh. minutes long. Another short title. Um, the Vast of Night, for people who don't know, uh, it's available to stream on Amazon Prime. Uh, it famously... Uh, at least in film circles, was basically rejected by every film festival known to man um, over and over and over and over again, and then was finally picked up by one and got a deal with Amazon. And just goes to show, never give up. But anyway, Vast of Night uh, takes place in 1950s New Mexico. Uh, switchboard operator and a radio DJ 
uh, stumble upon this this strange audio frequency thing they, that is interrupting his radio program. All this is taking place during the night of the local high school's basketball game. So the entire town is at the high school gymnasium, basically, except for these two people. Um, and they believe they come to believe that this strange frequency may have extraterrestrial origins. The reason why this movie, which is such a simple plot that you've heard some variation of a million times before, is all the way up at my number two of the year, is almost completely due to the way it is made. It is a super low-budget movie, almost entirely focused on these two characters, and a lot of it is what you hear and what you do not see. That is a huge chunk of this movie. For example... There's one extended sequence where we are, the camera is focused on this radio DJ, this guy, as he's uh, as he's live on the air on the radio, and he is interviewing a caller. Someone is called into the radio show who claims to have some knowledge of this frequency going on. And what we get is an eight-minute scene that alternates between focusing on the radio dj and slowly fading to black and then we deal with several seconds of black as we hear this caller tell his story and then it goes back fades back up to the radio dj fades back down to black and it alternates between that for about eight minutes and it is one of the most gripping scenes i have seen all year long it's so brilliantly done and the movie is full of tricks like that whether it's something that simple or an incredibly long uh, tracking shot on a steady cam that basically races through the entire town to give you the geography, the layout of the entire location of this movie, but all for a purpose. Um, it, the camera is always moving or doing something unique, always in the purpose of the story. And speaking of the story, this story is basically told as if it were a classic Twilight Zone episode um, extrapolated to be feature film length, which anyone who knows me knows that is candy to me. Um, the Twilight Zone is arguably my favorite show of all time. And it just works, man. This, this movie just works from minute one to minute 91. I was completely enraptured. Um, this director, Andrew Patterson is his name. I cannot wait to see what he does next this movie i think i told you via text after i watched it this movie is basically like my new bible of how to pull off a low budget genre film because what he does with the camera and what he does with sound and the performances he's able to get out of these relative unknowns he just he blew me away man i've it was the most impressed i've been with a movie this year by far great i mean yeah i'm a big fan of it it's it just didn't make my top 10 and i i kind of mentioned it was because i i knew you were going to be bringing it up and so i'm, I'm glad we still got to talk about it it's like everything you said it's a very impressive debut it's small scale it kind of jumps back and forth between these like you said long takes and long moments of stillness and then you'll get like 10 rapid cuts or something like that and like just to kind of wake you back up or something and it's very well done it's it's like a weird mix of it reminded me of like lynch at times and almost that kind of uh, a girl walks home at night kind of uh 
50s, almost doo-woppy thing. You know, like you said, it takes place in a small town. So there was a lot of uh, a lot of elements in there that, I, you know, you could see where, where he was drawing from. But it's its its own thing, and it's very cool. Um, I completely see everything you're saying about it. And it's available on Amazon. Um, the uh, festival it was going to was Slamdance. Um, so... Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, like you said, every, I can't recommend it enough as well. I, I'm glad it inspired you so much. Yeah, and the the last thing I'll say, a lot of movies, a lot of these small budget indie genre movies, you know, that try to make waves because, you know, genre, sci-fi, and especially horror, although this is obviously sci- more in the sci-fi realm, uh, they have such a built-in audience. So if you're going to try to make a low-budget movie and you can make one in those genres, you maybe have a better chance of getting some recognition, right? But a lot of... A lot of times what those movies do is try to uh, present maybe some lofty questions or an exciting premise, and they don't really answer it. And I think a lot of times films and filmmakers try to get away with uh, vague endings as a way of, like, the open-endedness is almost a a cop-out way for them to be like, well, you know, it's up to you to think what happened. And sometimes that work works oftentimes it doesn't uh vast of night does not fall into that trap it tells the story from beginning to end and that was another thing that i very much appreciated and yeah it is uh available if you have amazon prime it is available for free right now you can go watch it right now go 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 watch it. all right um i think i should have you do your number one because i suspect that your number one is my number two um, uh the five bloods yeah, um, yeah. My number two is *The Five Bloods*. Yes, um, that is my number one for sure. I, we spent a whole episode talking about it, right? So, yeah. I so what, I, I kind of feel like I know it's hot. Yeah, we've talked a lot about it. So I, like you said, I don't think much needs to be said. You can go listen to those episodes, and you know they're not that long ago. We we maintained many of the same things we talked about then. Um, yeah, the film's probably too long. It's a little messy. Uh, certain elements of it aren't going to work for everyone, but beyond that, consider the things that it does accomplish, how angry and present and prescient the film is, how skillfully assembled it is, how ambitious the narrative is. Like It's got to be one of the best ensembles of the year, and Delroy Lindo, without a doubt, gives the best male performance of the year. It's it's a lot of movie, and I'm not going to soon forget it. It has several of the best individual scenes of the year. And for all it does and does not accomplish, kind of up to you as a person, but it's it's unforgettable. And yeah, it's it's my number two of the year. Yeah, it's my number one. Spike Lee is one of America's best living filmmakers, and he made another classic. What more do you need to know? It's on Netflix. Go watch it. All right. And my film uh, is, yeah, uh, sorry to rush past that one, but we have like a two-hour talk about it. You can go listen to that. Um, yeah. With that said, my number one, my number one is First Cow, a film by Kelly Reichert. It is just now, within the last week, become available on video on demand. It is also, before I saw The Way Back in theaters, it is the film right before that that I saw the week before the theaters shut down. So it's one of the last films I saw in theaters before COVID kicked in. Um, so it has that special place in my heart. And um, I'm glad that the film is now widely available for people to go check out. Um, it's, it's a quiet film, just like most of the other films on my list. And... It's kind of the story of the birth of America and the birth of capitalism in America. It's the story of immigrants who come over here to start a new life. Uh, They see a hole in the market that you can make money off of. And the one character is an Asian man who has escaped years of 
rituals and rules and family obligations. And he muses that in this new country, history isn't here yet. It's coming, but maybe this time we can take it on our own terms. And he's talking about this being a new country without those kinds of rules. And yeah, the fact that the film can rustle up such major themes while essentially just being a quiet, lovely tale of male friendship male friendship is one of the things I loved about it. And it's about a gentleman named Cookie who spots a lone cow that arrives in the territory. And the cow is owned by a rich man by, played by Toby Jones. And Cookie realizes that with this cow's milk, he can cook all kinds of sweets and delicious treats that he never could have before. So with the encouragement of his new friend, played by King Lou, or sorry, na- named King Lou, the, the men steal the milk from this cow, and they use it to make a profit on these new treats. So they know they can only get away with their scheme for so long, and the film follows their story as they become friends and business partners and thieves. Um, Kelly Reichert is the director. She excels at this kind of narrative minimalism, and her films usually don't have a ton of dialogue. They usually move at a slower pace, uh, and that's kind of just like this one. But you'll I found myself completely hypnotized by it. Um yeah, and like I said, I I, I want to rewatch it. It's available now. I, I plan on doing that in the next week. And I think it's just perfect and heartwarming and delicate and equally complex and subtle and about major ideas about this country that we live in. And I just adore it. It's my favorite film of the year. And yeah, I think it's kind of one of the, uh, one of the few true masterpieces that have come out so far. My mother died when I was born and then my father died. I never stopped moving. It's the getting started that's the puzzle. No way for a poor man to start. You have a cow. First cow in the territory. This ain't a place for cows. Well, it's no place for a white man either. I sense opportunity here. Give me another. I'll give you six ingots for that last one. I taste London in this game. We have to take what we can when the taking is good. It seems dangerous. So is anything worth doing? Um, how could people watch this, Phil? Uh, it's on VOD. Uh, I believe it's uh, anywhere. Like I believe it's on Amazon right now. I have not been able to rewatch it, so I haven't checked, but... I, I saw that it had come out. Let me. Okay, see. so it's not. I'm just making sure it's not streaming somewhere for free, like a Hulu or a Netflix, right? It's it's available to rent. No, it's like a twelve. Yeah, so it's a twelve ninety nine, or yeah, it's a fourteen ninety nine rental or a twelve ninety nine. Sorry, a fourteen ninety nine purchase or a twelve ninety nine rental. That doesn't seem to make sense. Um. Yeah. Well, anyway, anyway uh, I haven't yeah. seen First Cow, but I I will vouch for. Not only Phil's taste, of course, why else would I do a podcast with him, but for Kelly Reichert as a director. I mean, I'm looking at her filmography right now, and before First Cow, in order of most recent titles, she directed Certain Women, Night Moves, Meeks Cut Off, Wendy and Lucy, and Old Joy. That has been her 21st century. Uh, few filmmakers could rival that level of quality without a dud either. So I'm sure it's great. I can't wait to watch it. Yeah, it's. I just looked. It's available to rent or buy on Amazon and iTunes and Google and all those. So yeah, you cool. can go. You can go get it wherever you want to go get it. Yeah, and it's probably uh, not every movie I would say is worth like the 
the ticket price that some of these, you know, first releases are. Um, but I, I would gather that first cow probably is. I mean, hell, it's your number one of the year. Yeah, and unfortunately, it's a movie that I actually really love seeing in a theater. It's a quiet film, but it's so hypnotic and kind of dreamlike during certain stretches that I'm glad I saw it so... You know, well, that's fucking great. Good for you. Sorry, sorry. I saw it in a, in a very immersive, wonderful theater. Uh, very relaxed. It was a good experience. I'm glad I had it before the year went to shit. Yeah, I'm happy for you, actually. All right. Is there any other ones that you saw that you wanted to bring up? Any other uh, honorable mentions? Any other? Um, no. I mean, I'll I'll give you know you know me, Phil. I like the shitty. <laughs> the shitty Hollywood movie. So, you know, I, I like some bad stuff that no one else likes, like Underwater. I liked, I liked, uh, we talked about it. Um, fuck, what was the name? Oh, The Wrong Missy, <laughs> that David Spade, Lauren Lapkus movie. Give a shout out to that one. Why not? Yeah, that's my number 62 of 64 this year. <laughs> um, What's your 64? Scoob. Scoob. Um, I have a new number 63 that happened this week since I've been home. Um, uh, that? I caught up with Once We're Brothers, Robbie Robertson and the band. Um, it's on Hulu right now. It's a documentary about the history of the band. As told by that Rob... bad? I, it, I, I shut it off halfway through. I couldn't finish it. Um, not, wow. be, not because the filmmaking was so poor or anything. I just couldn't swallow Robbie Robertson's shit anymore. Like it's so it's basically Robbie Robertson produced this documentary and it's solely him being interviewed, telling tales that you're like, Robbie, you've clearly told this version of the story a million times. And I don't know for those of you who know and love the band, you might know that Robbie Robertson screwed Levon Helm out of a lot of royalties over the years and other band members out of writing credits and such. And uh, yeah, I don't know. It, it infuriated me that a lot of it was him trying to not rewrite the band's history, but yeah, I don't know. It, it made me very angry, and I couldn't finish it. And <laughs> but I, yeah, it still it, it, wasn't as bad as Scoob. <laughs> Scoob was the other movie this year that, like, physically, I was just like, "This is making me feel ill. I don't want to continue this. I hate this." I just love that it was an actual docu documentary that you find offensive, that you're offended on behalf of his bandmates, and you're like, "Yeah, Scoob's still worse though." That animated movie about that talking dog. Well, I, as a Scoob fan, I was personally offended by that one. So it hurt me as much as I think the band members should have been hurt by Robbie Robertson. Oh, I'm, I'm glad uh, Wrong Missy's moving up. Moving up in the world. What yeah, about you? A, Any recommendations? Um, Yeah, my number... I have I have a few ones. One of them I, I thought you watched, uh, but I was waiting for you to mention. Uh, Swallow. Um, I think is a very good horror movie that I talked about in an earlier episode about a girl who starts, uh, or a woman, I should say, who is pregnant, and she begins to swallow increasingly dangerous small objects. Yeah, so I uh, I watched the first half of Swallow, and I was really enjoying it, and uh, then I fell asleep, and when I went to pick it up again, my rental had expired, so I needed to re-rent it. Okay, well, uh, yeah. but, but, but I, I did, I did like it, and it could definitely end up on my list. All right, um, one I watched today. If you want to talk about uh, depressing movies, I watched a movie today called Rewind, which is um, a collection of this vast video collection that this the director's name is Sasha Joseph Newlinger, and uh, the movie is about his childhood, and his father had tons and tons of videos of him. 
as a child, and you realize very quickly that as a boy, he was very disturbed and angry and doing very violent drawings and uncovering the reason behind his anger as a child and what was going on ultimately ends up revealing this massive generation-long tragedy of abuse and it's it's so sad and upsetting and um it's i don't want to say too much about it you know it's not give too much away but it deals a lot with sex abuse and um childhood abuse and um and the story gets crazier and crazier it doesn't it, that's just kind of the beginning of it and yeah it's a really difficult watch but yeah it's very good um wait i'm sorry so this is a documentary yes um the and, got- and, and it shows his childhood footage like his, yeah, the 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 footage his dad filmed of him, not being raped, but yes. No, uh, no, no. I know, but like like just childhood family footage. Yes, it, um, and yeah. I mean, that's all I'll say about it is it does involve like family members raping him, and um, but you see, there's so much footage from around the family of that time of them as kids because his dad was obsessed and was a filmmaker and he filmed everything. So there's all this footage of interactions with him as a child and his, uh, his abusers. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's it's a very difficult watch. Um, it's not fun. And the guy who made it basically said he made it as a way of healing his own wounds. So it's him interviewing his mother and interviewing his father and other family members about this very deep family, uh, tragedy that, um, I didn't realize it had kind of national ramifications. It actually, you know, like I said, it's a big story, actually. But I, I, I just watched that today. I would recommend it if you're in the mood for that kind of thing. Where is um, that available to a stream? Yeah, it's on uh, Prime. I watched it on Amazon. Um, okay. uh, Bad Education is on HBO right now. It has Hugh Jackman in it and Allison Janney. It's a very fun movie about a school uh, scandal that has uh, some major uh, implications for our larger society i would say um i I have the vast of night at 13 which you mentioned uh the painter and the thief is a good one um beastie boy story i wish was more widely available because as someone who kind of casually liked them it made me like them more and more hungry to explore their discography in a way that i hadn't quite before and i've had a good beastie boys year because of that movie and um the other amazon prime movie i would throw out is uh sailor and the spades um, very good film from a debut director. And finally, I would throw out, it's on Hulu. It just came out this weekend. It's a very, very fun, very light and breezy. Also, 85 minutes, I must say again, 85 minutes. It's called Palm Springs. Uh, it just came out. It has Andy Samberg. Oh, yes. It has Andy Samberg in it um, and Kristen Mal- Christine Melody. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful... I believe it also has... Uh... My leading lady, Camila Mendez, right? In a small she, role? Yes. she. Well, it's a small role, but it's it's a time loop movie like Groundhog's Day, so she appears quite frequently throughout the movie. Got it. But yes, um, she is. Uh, the movie takes place at a wedding, and she is the bride. Go support Camila, everybody. Stream it. Yeah. Um, it's a very... I think you'll like it a lot, actually. Yeah, I'm going to watch it. I, I thought it was next weekend. I didn't even know it had already come out. Yeah, I watched Bad that. Bad job, Tom. I watched that this weekend. I watched The Old Guard, the new um, uh, uh, Charlie's Theron movie. I can't believe I blanked on her name. Um, I was really intrigued to watch it because um, Gina Prince-Bythewood directed it, the woman who directed 
uh, love and basketball. So I was like, oh, let's check that one out. Um, it was fine. Um, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I, there's some good movies that have come out this year. You do have to seek them out. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I, I'm good. Are you good? I'm good. All right. Do you have any other recommendations for this week? Anything else you wanted to shout out? Um, well, you know, like I was saying earlier, uh, trying to to figure out why I haven't been as up-to-date on movies this year and the other means of entertainment I've been diving into, I, I would recommend some... Uh, some comedy podcasts that I that I really love. Uh, one that is by comedians that isn't necessarily a comedy podcast that I've been enjoying a lot re-listening to. I, I've listened to them when they came out is a podcast called In Voorhees We Trust with Gorley and Rust. Two comedians who uh, episode by episode break down each of the Friday the 13th movies in season one and then each of the Halloween movies in season two. Uh, very enjoyable, fun, just like easy listening to two really funny guys who I like from improv comedy podcasts the world over, which I uh, listen to religiously, just spending two or three hours an episode talking about a movie and uh, two massive horror franchises that I'm a big fan of. And you think we go long, man, their, their episode on the 1978 Halloween is three hours and 40 minutes. Well, I mean, there's a lot to dive into. I understand. I Exactly. So I would recommend that. Um, if you just like want to put some guys talking about movies in an entertaining way on in the background, check out that podcast. Cool. Um, like I have, I had some music recommendations, but I think since we're talking a lot of music next week, I'll save some of those. Yeah. Um, the only thing, you know, I've really had going on that I would mention that I watched is we mentioned very briefly on the last podcast that happened live while we were recording that Aneo Morricone died. And uh, that has sent me this week into listening to a ton of his work on Spotify. He's just done an incredible array of films from the, you just mentioned John Carpenter. He worked with John Carpenter. He worked with Brian De Palma. He worked with Sergio Leone and Quentin Tarantino and all these big names uh, you know, that we, that we cherish as film lovers and stuff. So I actually rewatched the good, the bad and the ugly this week. And it's as good of a film as I remember, you know, it's one of my favorites. And even I was talking to Belle, even she knows the, you know, she like, it's that, that sound has gone beyond the film. She doesn't know the good, the bad, and the ugly. Yeah. But, it's but, iconic. But that music from that movie is, you know, she's like, Oh yeah, that's the Western music. Like that music is what people define as the Western, the sound of the Western. And, you know, I rewatched The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, and it's available on a bunch of streaming services. I think I watched it on Netflix. It's, it's a damn, you know, you, there's worse ways to spend your time than watching that classic. So, um, and, and listening to those, that music by Neo Morricone. That's a good way I've spent my week. Yeah. And, uh, people can also stream a lot of his music on Spotify or Apple Music or whatever. But yeah, if you could, if you could watch one, Watch Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. Truly one of the greatest movies ever made. All right. That's the show for this week. Please make sure you subscribe, rate, and review it, the show. It is available on iTunes, the Google Store, Stitcher, and on YouTube. You can also send us an email or a comment at howsthatdaypod at gmail. That's all one word. Thank you to Zach Pitts for the theme music. Tom, tell them where to find you, please. Uh, Big Fat Bond on Twitter. Bindi, Tom Bindi on Instagram. 
You can find me at Phil underscore Wiedenheft on Twitter, P. Wiedenheft on Instagram. Uh, you can also follow me on Letterboxd to check my daily reviews of everything I've been watching. And with that, Tom, I will see you next week where we will be discussing the year in music so far. Awesome. Can't wait. Love you, everybody. Stay safe out there. Love everybody. Adios. Adios.